Good evening, everybody. Hope you're doing well. My goodness, it is but a fortnight until Santa himself decides to visit freedomainradio.com slash donate and to say, who? Who has been the good philosophers? Who's a good philosopher? Who's doing good in the world? Who's helping out Free Domain Radio? And uh, hopefully he will have something in his bag. That is not a lump of coal. Although these days, I guess a lump of coal worth very much. But um, if you'd like to help out the show, help us survive. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. Looking forward to your support. You know, a little present to the hardworking team of philosophy, the hardest working team of philosophers, I believe, in the whole wide world. Can be yours for the low, low price of you fill in the blank. Mike, who do we have on first? All right. Up first today is Michael M. He wrote in and said, I work in a kindergarten of two and three-year-olds in China. The school is meant to be peaceful and non-threatening as possible, but it's not. There still is the naughty chair for things like not eating your food. I don't put people in the naughty chair, but I'm still working in a place that does, in addition to using other types of rewards and punishments. The question is, is it possible to teach peacefully? And if so, do you have any suggestions from raising your daughter? Is it possible to teach peacefully? Um, can you just expand on that a little bit? I want to make sure I understand. Hello? <clears throat> Hello. Hi, Steph. Hi. I'm really excited. I'm very yes, glad. I can, I, I can expand on that. Um, so I teach two- and three-year-olds partially, um, and they really – they kind of have a choice of coming to our school. It's not like a public school or anything. It's completely free market. But at the same time, they kind of have to do what their parents say and to do what we tell them to do. And like, um, I'm having trouble finding the words, but like the, the threat of the naughty chair, we've been using that is like putting them in jail. And I don't like using that. But at the same time, it works. It like it. it it can get them to line up and get them to, like, not push each other and stuff yeah, like well, that. Of, co- of course it works. <laughs> okay. I mean, <clears throat> taxes work too, <laughs> right? Right. And uh, if you really want to take an extreme example, if you really want to get a woman pregnant, rape works too. It just doesn't mean that it's right. But, yeah, it, I mean, it, coercion works. I mean, in the evolution of human society, it has retained a central place because of its effectiveness. Because human beings, as you know, and again, these are extreme examples, but human beings, as you know, are biologically designed not to be free, not to be moral, not to be self-righteous, and not to sacrifice their genes for the sake of the advancement of abstract virtue. They are designed to reproduce. And reproducing uh, in a situation of aggression requires either becoming an aggressor or obeying. Uh, It's... You know, human society just follows the same model of apes. It's dominate or be dominated. And uh, violence works because that's how we are programmed biologically is, is to succumb, to submit to violence and, uh, and to breed. And all of the genetics uh, or all of the genetic tendencies we may ever <clears throat> have had to place virtue above reproduction would have been bred right out of the gene pool, lickety split, right? So – Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not surprised that it works. It, it works. Uh, it works very well. Okay. <sighs> I feel sad now, or depressed. Why? 
because I'm at this place. What I really want to talk about is whether or not I made the right decision to come out here. But I don't. If if you don't want to, I don't want to make the show the Michael show. Um, no, I no. Listen, listen. I get the Steph show a lot. It is the Michael show. No, really, it is the Michael show. Whatever you want to talk about is what I want to talk about. Okay. Well, I would like to talk about the place that I'm at right now, um, both in my life and like physically in China. Tell you a little bit about the school and get your take on this small business and whether the people running it, <clears throat> if you think it's going to be successful or just like a, a mirage of successfulness. All right. So the school's founded a few years ago based on a vision that education sucks in the world、um, and that. Most of schools, but just all schools are, they don't teach anything. They just produce robots, especially in China. And so the founder wanted to make a place where people actually learn and are able to think for themselves. Like the motto of the school is "Give a man a fish, eat for a day; teach a man a fish, eat forever."、Yeah. And the results work for our English program. There's no tests. There's no books. It's based off of neuroscience. It's meant to be as fun and engaging and Enjoyable as possible, and there are kids who like who've been there for two or three years who are six years old and can sing "We Will Rock You" fluently and can like joke around and be normal like human beings, which in China like is not always the case, right? Unfortunately, okay. So those are the pros.、Um, well, more pros. It's really fun to work at. Like、um, farting is encouraged and permissive. Like.、Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like the the boss when we were teaching the kindergarten together, told a two year old, "Hey, Shilan, pull my finger," and he she pulled his finger and then he farted and the kids、nice. were oblivious to it, but we thought it was really funny.、Right. Um, it grew a lot. It started as like a one story little crappy schoolhouse five years ago, and now it's a big two story place with a few hundred students.、Um, we're doing an entrepreneurship program where we're teaching eight and nine year olds how to flip educational books. <clears throat> like getting them from a supplier and then going to the street corner and selling them and stuff like that, and really like paying them for their time rather than them rather than them paying us. Right.、Uh, the, the leader is very ambitious,、um, and we've got good partners in our city.、Um, like we have, we're partnered with、uh, a group that has the license for a very famous、uh, cartoon character. And we're going to do events in shopping malls and places like that.、Um, and I have a lot of responsibility. I've been here for six months, and I'm now the CFO and basically running the company in the founder's absence because he's working on other business projects. Right. Okay. So here are the cons, though. The founder of the school has a failing marriage, and his wife, like. When they got drunk, like told me, like I don't know what I just don't know. Sometimes if this is if this was the right decision, and I don't know if I can stay together.、Um, there's some drug use with、uh, the higher management, like、um, weed and acid. Like occasionally, like on Thanksgiving, we had the next morning off, and so we. Got drunk and then got high and then dropped acid and stayed up all night and climbed a mountain and I ran across a mountain range until eight in the morning and then had to stay up for twelve more hours.、Right. Um, 
the cons are we're kind of a bunch of misfits all with like bad childhoods like we're professional but like the stories i've heard from some of the people who work there like both chinese and foreigners are just not good like one chinese person really like her parents all the time told her she wasn't good enough she was ugly she wasn't smart enough as her older brothers or as her friends she was never good enough stuff like that and i'm the only one who went to therapy i feel really nervous right now and that is that's basically it for the cons okay uh you uh, started off talking about some of the cons for kids say that again oh the cons for kids yeah it's yeah. not like it's meant to be peaceful but at the same time there's still coercion with the naughty chair and like if you don't sit nicely in the class or if you interrupt the class you can't be in you have to leave right and so that's basically it those are the cons so obviously no corporal punishment or anything like that right hell no no and yeah. dude like we stop it too it's awesome like i stopped a grandma she was trying to like rip a kid's sweater off and um and so i i grabbed her like her arms and like got her off of him and she was all huffy and puffy and pissed and i told her that like if she does that again she's kicked out and she can she can't come back in and that's the cult like the founder of the school is really excited like he's really happy that i did that and all the other teachers were too right right okay so yeah it's meant to be peaceful but it's just not all the way there yet But it certainly sounds. I mean, I can imagine it's um, almost infinitely better than yeah. What else yeah. is going on in China? Oh, yeah. Right? yeah, 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 yeah. Seriously, and yeah, yeah, and the kids really do like us. Like with the two and three year old babies, like whenever they see me, one girl. Oh, so sad, man. Like this one girl is raised basically by her grandparents who fucking just like yell and scream at each other and hit her and always tell her like hurry up put your shoes on get 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 let's go come on come on come on, come on. and like whenever she sees me she starts running over like and just calls my name like as i'm walking away like michael bye michael bye michael and runs and gives me a hug whenever she sees me and um one time she was being really rude to the other kids and I said to her, like, kind of in, like, broken Chinese, hey, don't talk like that to other people. People don't like it when you talk like that. And she said to me, but that's how we talk to each other at home. And her mom's away on business all the time and just has no time to see her. And when she does come back to see her, like, she has to stay up really late till, like, 10.30 or 11 because she doesn't get home from work until, like, 9 o'clock and then doesn't have any time to spend with her daughter. It's just, and then like, oh, it's just really sad because that happens a lot, you know? And you can see like the troublemaker kids, like the quote troublemaker kids always like, well, when I talk to their parents, well, did you hit them? Like when they were babies? Yeah. Uh, we stopped now. And it's just, oh man, you guys. Right. They're just forcing them to do a bunch of shit they don't want to do. And it's not like it's not consistent at all because like the parents will always try and push them to like do all these things that they're uncomfortable with. Like, you know, get in front of a crowd and sing a song for everybody or like do a tongue twister in English. And then when I say to the parents, are right, you go up there? No, 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 no. Right. Right. <sighs> so, yeah, I, I, I want to hear your take. On what? <laughs> On the whole situation. You gotta focus me in a little bit, bro. All right. What do you think about the management, the the cons, the the failing marriage, the depressed wife, the drug use, and that? 
can something can like something be successful with that? Like, can a business be successful with that? Well, I uh, you know Steve Jobs had a uh, a daughter. I think he failed to acknowledge for quite some time. That's what I was thinking. And you you can have successful businesses. Uh, yeah, I mean, what was a singer for Creed? Creed, one of the biggest Christian rock bands of the 90s and early 2000s, I think. I mean, the guy's just, as far as I understand it, completely gone off the deep end. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there are, there are lots of unstable people who are uh, very successful. So, yeah, I think uh, uh, I, I think that if, if people have a, you know, a lot of talent and drive and so on, it can overcome a, uh, a lot of dysfunction. Okay, well, he definitely um, has that. Yeah, during a creative time in the band Queen's existence, uh, Brian May was so, I think, he, if my memory serves, this is all off the top of my head, but I think he was uh, tempted with having an affair outside of his marriage, and he was driving along, it's like, hey, that the water under that bridge looks pretty inviting right about now. Uh. And there are a lot of people who go through significantly dark periods uh, during their lives, and their creative output seems to either be unaffected or sometimes even affected uh, positively. Yeah, because sometimes um, it can push you to do to do things like, I don't know, because you have so much, en- like, I feel like I went through something like that too, like a couple of years ago when I started my own business with a friend and I was in a really dark place. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it seems to be a fairly common refrain among artists and creators and entrepreneurs that heartbreak cracks your soul and the white stuff that oozes out is beneficial to the world. Like a big, so, beautiful egg. Well, yeah. I mean, when you get severely smashed up, you know, sometimes you bleed darkness and sometimes you bleed light. And um, it's not a recommendation for smashing anyone up, but it's some things that can come out of this. But, of course, a lot of it has to do not so much with the circumstances of adulthood, but with the circumstances of early childhood. Uh, Steve Jobs' father was one of the few children uh, – sorry, one of the few parents around in, in the day, back in – way back in the day, who never hit his son. Okay. Okay. I mean, that, and in the 50s? <laughs> Unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Unprecedented. <clears throat> and his father stood up against child abuse – and to the significant resistance of sometimes those around him. So he had an example of moral courage, and he had an example of relatively peaceful parenting. And uh, so people who grow up like that look like freaks to a lot of people because they have such different experiences from the majority. It's so different. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, because they say, well, that that guy's kind of weird. It's like, <laughs> well, he's weird on two levels. He's weird because... He's had a very different experience from you, and he's weird because he's, ha- you know, he's also had a very different experience from almost everyone. So, so not only has he had a unique experience as a child, but um, it's so rare in, in those situations and those circumstances. It's so rare that it's hard for him to find a place to fit in. So then people say, well, you know, those kids who are raised peacefully, you know, they're, <laughs> they're kind of weird. They're, yeah, they kind of don't fit in. It's like, well, yeah, that's right. You know. That that kid who's not raised to enjoy the taste of human meat doesn't seem to enjoy our meals very much. He doesn't come around very often. Yeah, it's like I don't think from that we get yay cannibalism. Right, right, <laughs> I think right, right. We get, you know, like uh, 
uh, or, you know, that that guy who doesn't like beating the slaves. Oh man, <laughs> what's the matter with him? That's funny. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, feeling out of sorts with your society. You know, there's an old saying which says it is no mark of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly disturbed society. Right. That's good. That's good. That's true. That's true. So. You know, and the other thing too is that in the in the process of human, or in the process of personal evolution, you can't guarantee that everyone is going to grow. You can't guarantee that everyone's going to grow. There are a lot of people, like in terms of personal growth, and I don't know. Obviously, I have no clue what's going on with this guy's marriage. But if I were to hazard a guess, it would be something like maybe he's committed to growth. Or she's committed to growth and the other person isn't. Or they started off being committed to growth and then they hit something that stopped them in their tracks. Can I fill you and in actually, a little bit more? No, no, because they're not here to really talk about their lives. Okay. So um, I'd rather not uh, do that. But um, when I when I started down the road of, of personal growth, I did so because I felt that there was a, there were a lot of people ahead of me. When you're young and you've had a tough childhood, the healthiest thing you can feel is insecure. The overcompensation where, you know, friends I had when I was a kid, just seemed, they seemed so immensely confident to me. Uh-huh, right. You know, they, they were very funny. And I remember there was a guy who was living with us. And there was a, the, the couch, we were all sitting around chatting. The couches were full except for one seat and two guys went for that seat and one guy was there and then the the other guy who was living with us just kind of slid into that seat and then the guy who was about to sit down who was actually closer was like dude i was just about to take that seat and the guy sort of shrugged right right and he's like no i got here first right and that seemed to me like wow I, i was half fascinated and half like repulsed by that and half you know another half admiring like and, yeah, like, where's his, like, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it, that was a dick move to steal the guy's seat from out from under him. But no, just like, and, oh, and this, whatever, I got yeah, it. And, and this same guy, like, uh, I have, um, uh, I've never been a uh, tit-for-tat tit money guy. Uh-huh. Right, so, in, in general, it's like, uh, oh, uh, you know, I'll get this one, whatever, we're out for dinner, I'll get this one, you get the next one, or whatever, right? And it's not, but formal or anything like that it tends to work out really well it tends to work out really well Mm -hmm. but i've known people who are like okay you had the club sandwich i had water you had a pot i had a dessert that was 4.99 you had a dessert that was 3.99 carry the two add tax you know all that kind of stuff like literally it's like i'm waiting for them to take out a nail file and start shaving down a goddamn penny (laughs) <laughs> and, and this guy who took the seat was like that so literally i mean literally we we went and bought 18 he, he, we went and bought 18 dollars worth of groceries okay and this is back when 18 dollars worth of groceries could feed an army for a month right <laughs> could get you halfway to stand to uh stalingrad and back in the dead of winter and I didn't have my wallet. And, you know, basically my philosophy is, yeah, yeah. I mean, it just – it goes into the general tide comes in, tide comes out uh-huh. of finances. 
you know, next time we go to a movie, I'll say, oh, you know, you got the groceries, I'll get whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this guy, this guy literally was, okay, now we're going to your bank, right? <laughs> Seriously. And, and this is back in the day, no bank machines, you know, when I was 15 or 16. And this guy was like, we're, we're going to your bank and we're going to, you know, we get to the bank and he's like, well, you got to take out the nine bucks. <laughs> and you you got to, you know, go up to the cashier with a withdraw for nine bucks and hand me the nine dollars. And, it's, you know, there was like a big lineup because there's always big lineups at banks or ATMs. Open Monday to Thursday, 10 to 3, for your inconvenience. It closed for <laughs> and, an hour. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I had to, you know, I'm, what am I going to do? Am I going to say, are you kidding me? No, I was too shy for that. I was like, okay, we'll go to the bank. I'll, I'll take out the money. I'll write you the check. And, <laughs> and here's your money. <laughs> it was like, and part of me was like, what is your major malfunction, OCD uh-huh. bot? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, what are you, should you be washing your hands 400 times a day or something? And another part of me was like, wow, this guy really stands up for himself financially. True. And uh, holy, it just, um, so, so people and the degree of confidence that they had to make jokes, uh, sometimes they would, you know, go up and rib on strangers and, and stuff. You know, it's like, it's like when you see people, um, I think it was uh, Samantha B. I don't know if she's still on the Daily Show. She used to be on the Daily Show, and yeah, she I know did. Yeah, so she did a, a, a skit, if memory serves me right, where she put on a pair of women's panties, and coming out of the women's panties was an ungodly amount of pubic hair. Uh huh. And it was fake, obviously, uh-huh, right? <laughs> anyway, so she'd come out and she'd ask her boyfriend, sort of, and they were filming this, right? And, oh, how does this look, right? And people were like, Oh my. God, what's that? The Sasquatch with a suntan, and um, and she she was saying like, oh man, it feels so terrible to do that kind of stuff. But you know, you commit and you you get it done. Mm-hmm. And my friends, when I was growing up, not all of them, but a lot of them had this just this odd kind of confidence. And I was really quite I was quite fascinated by it. I I somewhat admired it, and I I, I was somewhat afraid of it. It seems like. I mean, I knew that they'd had some pretty dysfunctional histories. And part of me was like, well, well, they seem to be doing okay. Right. I know I live with a few guys who are just like that. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, they're going up and they're talking to people, asking women out. And, and you know, they're, they're – and, of course, it, it seems to come with this unholy amount of personal ribbing. Right, 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 right. Like they're always like – I never felt, like, safe around them. Like, it was fun and exciting, but, like, dangerous at the same time. Oh, yeah. It's like this bullwhip zing fest all the time. Which, exactly. But, but also, like, amazingly funny guys. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly but what also, you mean. Yeah, and, and also, they had a, a truly spinal itch form of restlessness. Go on. Well, they were constantly in motion. I mean, their their hearts were just brownie in motion, thumping all over the place. Like the idea that you'd go to the library, pick up some books, put up put up your feet, and just read quietly for an evening. Mm-hmm. Pretty incomprehensible mm. to uh, uh, to these guys. And they did, yeah. The, some of them had a sort of, I mean, to me at least, a dangerous. Like my life has always had walls and rules. And boundaries. 
Like, I'll do this. Not going to do that. And these guys, it's like they just – like where I would come up to a wall, like some giant-ass Berlin-style Pink Floyd wall. They just walk right through it. Mm-hmm. And so, like, yeah, with, with drinking to excess, with, with drugs and and so on, they just uh, didn't seem to have any breaks or any uh, – like B-R-A-K-E-S didn't seem to have any – a sense of, of restraint in particular. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. And if you did, you were sort of, there was this automatic... Come on, come on, okay. come on. Let's party, let's party. Yeah, to some degree, I mean, they. I don't know if they ever cared enough about me to want to drag me along, in, you know, in general. Uh, and I felt, I felt pretty small relative to these guys. Mm-hmm. Because the things that I was interested in, the things that I was doing and so on, were not things that they... I mean, in, we hung out a lot and, and have a lot of affection for a lot of those memories. And they did teach me a lot about music. Uh-huh. And they did teach me a lot about quality. Like, uh, we used to get together and have what we called the Decca Dinners, which was, you know, every six months you'd scrimp and save. And then you'd go and buy the most inconceivably expensive stuff at the grocery store mm-hmm. and make it all in one meal. Along with like $20 a pound Ethiopian coffee and we, you'd get hot plates with like the most delectable shrimp and you'd, you'd make your crazy desserts that like profiteroles and stuff. Like, and you just basically spend a whole day buying and cooking and eating to the point where you just couldn't eat anymore. Okay, and those it. were real oases in a pretty pinched youth. And so, yeah, so the, I mean useful people to, to have had in my life and I'm very happy to have known them. But man, their personal relationships were a mess. Yeah, I mean that—that's you know that, that's the old Freudian thing, right? If you can if you can get work and love right, you pretty much got it right. And these guys, you know, often hardworking and so on, but uh, at least and, and that smoothed out at least for one of the guys I'm thinking of later on. But um, yeah, just a, a mess and no vulnerability, no inner lives, no no talk of insecurities, no you know there was just a lot of bluster. And, and, and some of it seemed very organic, you know, like, you know, you can often detect insecurity at the bottom of bluster, but these guys just seem to uh, be extremely confident with no sense of, of boundaries or, or sort of right or wrong or good or bad and um, uh, exciting, but dangerous, like a motorcycle that's a little tiny bit more powerful than you can handle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's uh, you know, it's exciting. <laughs> you know, that motorcycle certainly has your attention, but that's partly because you're afraid of hitting a wall and bursting into flames. <laughs> so, right, right, right. So I sort of don't want to make this about my uh, teenage friends, but um, how did we get talking on this? I can't remember. We were talking about uh, fu- uh, function and dysfunction in work. Oh, right, right. And okay. then we wanted to, talk, or at least I wanted to talk about um, uh, people's. Um, level of, of confidence and growth. So as I was sort of growing up, you know, you, it, it's, it's taught us in the hair, right? You, you start off slow and you end up winning. I mean, winning sounds like the wrong way to put it, if that makes any sense. But you start off slow and you're like, okay, you guys race ahead without self-knowledge and all the time I'm investing in self-knowledge will have me drop further and further behind. Right. But like when you're 40, they're still exact, they're like, a few inches ahead of where they were when they were 25 and you're like 10 miles up ahead. Well, yeah. I mean, 
ex- yeah, except they have usually accumulated a fairly significant amount of disasters in their lives. <laughs> I see. You know, like like divorces or you know, whatever it is, right? I mean, just okay. For my generation, it'd be like getting a kid out of wedlock or getting a girl pregnant. Yeah, or an STD, or you know, some bullshit tattoo that you don't know what the hell you were doing, or yeah, or or some you know, big 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 mountains of credit card debt, or just getting fired, or, yeah, getting involved with some married woman or guy, and. Mm. Mm. You know, just some, just some mess. That uh... yes. No, I'm just thinking about. Um, I mean, the people that I used to live with that sound pretty similar to the the guys that you used to live with. Um, like we'd have once a week or once a month, like really nice dinners, and we had a really shitty house that we transformed into something really beautiful. And one of the guys, his body is just covered in tattoos from like toe to to head and like he was really self-confident and he had like a terrible childhood but like he would be pretty he'd be kind of vulnerable about it but the other two guys would would be you know all bluster and no real talk about that and and yeah i was just thinking back to sometimes living with them well of course people ink their childhoods on their skin so they don't have to have it in on their face or in their voice or Right, they need to. Right, it's it's the parents I think who drive the tattoos. Yeah, I think to you're right. to mark the child as uh, broken. Yeah, I'm thinking back to his tattoos, and I'm seeing that. Oh yeah, I mean, when I was um, in my early to mid twenties, I wrote this novel called Revolutions, which people can buy if they want at freedomainradio.com, and um, it's about 19th century Russian radical anarchists. And when I was, oh, Lord, I wish I could tell these cards apart sometimes. But anyway, at some point, I was living uh, in a frat house uh, in a room with another guy. And one of the guys who was living in the frat house for the summer, I don't think he was part of any frat, but he was in charge of uh, painters, like student painters. And he had these, yeah, giant tattoos on on his chest and uh, uh, and all that. We spent a lot of time topless and had this weird eerie to me kind of self-assuredness and confidence to him. Now, I say weird not because I have any problem with self-assurance and confidence. I say weird because, you know, the shaven head, the, the, I think he had a nose piercing, the, 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 the giant tattoos all over his torso and so on. You know, they scream dysfunction to me. Right. And so the fact that he seemed so relaxed and confident, was, it kind of blew my mind. And I used to, I used to, I chatted, I didn't chat with him much, but I observed him a lot in social situations, and I used his body language for the main character in my in my novel, and um, I, I was I was fascinated. You know, this guy had an ease and a receptivity to him, and so on. And what it meant to me was that he had created a milieu around him where nobody questioned his choices. And and that I don't think is is a very good milieu to, to to be in, right? So so there was nobody who was saying, "Hey man, what are you doing? Like, what, why are you thinking of getting a tattoo?" Right, 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 right. It was just kind of a reinforcing bubble around him. Yeah, it's it's like the hipsters who <laughs> nobody ever says, 
don't you think that being ironic about other people's achievements is is ironic in and of itself? Oh, I'm so sick of the hip you know, I'm so glad I'm not around I anymore. I know you've got tight lobster pants and Keeble elf shoes, but dear God in heaven, can you actually produce something that makes you vulnerable and can be rejected? Seriously, and quit talking shit about successful people and, like, successful companies. Sell out. <laughs> yeah, that's, right. it's, it's like they're really just exploiting people and, like, I'm glad that I don't work for something like that and make fun of all their coworkers if they work for some job. Like, well, this guy just – you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and then they all laugh. Ha, 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 those Republicans. Yeah, it always uh, – they sort of look on society. I don't know if you've ever seen a film called Office Space, but Jennifer Aniston's boss, you know, who's this, this earnest, homely guy who wants everyone to wear flair, you know, like buttons on their – oh, you want me to wear more flair, you know? Well, no, you have to want to do the flair. You want – wait, you want me to put the flair on? Do you want me to want to put the flair on? Like, you know, that kind of stuff where – Gotcha. And, and yeah, no, I know, I could do a whole bit on hipsters, but um, – you know, there there are some traumas that I really get, and I have a huge amount of sympathy with. Mm-hmm. Hipsterism is not one of them. No, and why not? Because <laughs> most of those kids are like the dorky kids who are out of place. At least, like thinking back to the ones that I knew, like they weren't good at sports and of average intelligence, and so they do something to like distinguish themselves, but they all end up doing the same thing. No, because there's trauma, which is uh, harmful to the self, and then there's trauma which is harmful to others. Okay. And as Socrates said, and as Jesus said, and as many other thinkers have said, it is better to suffer wrong than to do wrong. And the problem with hipsters is that they're in this self-reinforcing, self-erasing, superior to anything that moves while remaining perfectly still themselves, uh, is, and, and because they don't keep it to themselves... They uh, are a corrosive force in the rest of the world. Like they are like evil Jedi <clears throat> luring you to the dark side. Join us over here with our organically grown lattes uh, with soy milk. And, you know, we will watch the parade of fools called the world. And we will complain about those who sell out despite the fact that we never even got an offer to sell out. You know, hey, <clears throat> I, I, I don't mind someone who says don't be a sellout. But you at least have to have gotten an offer. Otherwise, you're like a you're like a homely virgin praising abstinence. <laughs> you know, it's like, if you if someone came up to you as a hipster and said, "I will give you a million dollars to star in my commercial," and they said, "No, yes, okay," you know, props to you. I may not be a wise decision, but I re- you know, but these guys, I mean, who the hell is offering to buy them out? Oh, you you're a sellout. It's like. Well, who you know? When have you ever been tempted? You know, when someone come up and offered you a lot of money uh, for something that may go against the grain? Don't give me this shit. Go out there and do things in the world. And, and the other thing too is that I don't like the the, the, the tiny black holes uh, of a lot of people's personalities. They're they're very small. They live very small. In other words, they could not inspire anyone. Right. And hipsters hipsters are like these vampires that fasten their little peg teeth on the jugular of enthusiasm that makes the entire world. and they they go uh, they go and congregate in in coffee shops and they sometimes will occasionally read found poetry to each other and shit like that and it's like well you know there's only a coffee shop here because no one's being ironic and you know the guy who picked your fucking coffee was not doing it 
to be ironic. And you know the people who come to work here do it not to be ironic. So you're living in this world where everyone's achieving and creating, and you're just mocking and being negative towards everything. And it's a, it, it's a black hole that pulls other people's enthusiasm in. And I keep a very close eye on my own level of enthusiasm. Like I'm like a, candle, I'm like a guy carrying a candle through a storm. <laughs> you know. And, and if there are people around who make that enthusiasm flicker, I get the fuck out. <laughs> gotcha. I'm going to remember that. I'm going to write that down. Yeah, no, listen. I mean as, as far as keeping the treasure of enthusiasm alive – Man, it is a it is a flickering candle in a high, wet, stormy wind, and you got to cup that shit and keep it safe, and you got to cover it up, you got to guard it, and you got to take it to the basement, and you got to double tape the windows, and you, you really have to keep those who piss on your light. Well, Get I guess out. further than pissing distance away. Sorry, you were going to say. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, like, that, I feel really good. My. Uh boss and business partner we both like whenever we talk about the future of the business we both feel like really energized and both like i feel so much better after talking with him and some other people around here like i feel worse and so that's really good i mean that's i feel a lot better i feel really good yeah and and so the hipsters it's not so much that they seem afraid to try anything or to do anything or be vulnerable that's not the problem to me the problem is they've made a virtue of it Right, it's a good thing to be like that. Yeah, like they'll like the, they'll like the band until there are more than twelve people in the audience. Like the people who turned on Bob Dylan when he went electric, when he just wanted to, you know, do something else. Oh my God! Don't even get me started on that bullshit. Like seriously, oh my God, oh my God! You know it's the sixties, right? You might have some more important things to deal with than the fact there's electricity in his guitar. <laughs> he's not a demon god of voltage. He's just a guy who plugged in his guitar. And, the, you know, the outrage, you know, or, or God forbid, <laughs> when I was a kid, this is going way back, right? God forbid, you know, there's only one mortal sin in the hipster universe. Only one mortal sin in the hipster universe. And that is saying you like a song without knowing it's a cover song. I see. You know, like, oh, I, I, I really like Dancing in the Streets by Van Halen. <laughs> well, that's like, Van Halen wrote that song and recorded it, but you don't know it was like Martha and the Shirelles or whoever the hell it was. Like, you don't know that it's a cover. You know, God forbid. You know, boy, you know, that Fuji's version of A Change is going to come. Boy, they, that's a great song they wrote. Don't you know that Sam Cooke? He wrote it three days before he was murdered for, I mean, or killed, not murdered. But, um, yeah, so if you, if you put forward a song that you like and you don't even know that it's a cover song, oh, man. I mean, that's, that's the, I think that's the only death penalty clause in the hipster universe. That's... I see. It's a little bit different now. Now it's, like, uh, now it's liking a song that other people like, that non-hipsters like. That's the death sentence. Oh, yeah. God forbid you. I mean, do they just have to regularly go through and purge their iTunes collection of anyone who's made it? And I had to do that, um, too. I had to do that, too. Like, I couldn't admit, like, yeah, I like that song. That song's cool. Just like, oh, no, that song's stupid. Right. Or... Or the ultimate four-letter word, lame. Lame. Yeah, we don't. The people my age don't say that. Well, a few, dude, in the Midwest. <laughs> this one, <dude. laughs> I grew yeah, up at, I grew what? up on the West Coast. What? That's an old school word, what are you man. Saying there, Sonny. <laughs> when I say it's double plus, I'm good. what are you getting? 
No, so what is the new word which is just like sigh, roll your eyes, negative can't even be discussed, there's no point in it. Let me think, let me think. All right, so like, oh my God, that is just so like, <laughs> well, if they're, if they're a girl, unacceptable is a really, that's more like for political or like. Inappropriate. Inappropriate, no, unacceptable. Inappropriate, unacceptable. I remember in college, my roommate and I were throwing water balloons at our own, at his van because we were bored and well, we, because we hated our lives and we hated the college and you know everybody around us and so we took it out on the van and we got in trouble with the RAs and I remember one of the women one of the girls saying saying like oh my god that is just unacceptable yeah not even I don't accept it it's somehow third party unacceptable Jesus cries <laughs> yeah I want to change this I don't know what word is is lame I don't know just the whole stupid attitude, but I want to change the subject um, and make it something more like hopeful and positive for people in the U.S. Whatever. or for Canada. <laughs> Sorry, that's all right. Um, like, if you're feeling like that, if you feel like trapped with a bunch of like shitheads, and maybe you don't know why you're feeling like that, because I started listening to your show three years ago when I got back from Australia and turned into an ANCAP, and like I had to turn it off. Like I was too scared to listen to it because it was like it was hitting too deep of a nerve. Um, like because I knew that I had to make big changes in my life if I was to keep listening to you because I couldn't share that type of shit with like the people I had around me. And Hang on a sec. Hang on a sec, Mike. I'm just making a note here. Scared of free domain radio because it's too deep. I knew sooner or later that was going to happen to someone. <laughs> it's good, man. So you I, just, really... I wanted to make a note. Let the word be put forward on this day of the eighth year of this show. <laughs> Finally, somebody found philosophy too deep to be comfortable. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, you have really, you have really, you have a great show, and you really have really provocative titles. Um, and you do such a better job of getting people hooked into this type of deep, important shit than like other libertarian or Austrian economic type stuff, which are just so dry. And like, I'm really smart. And so for me, it's interesting, but like for most people and like for girls or like, you know, normal people, that stuff's so boring, you know, but Michael, um, Michael, yes, don't yes. you know, don't you know that. Freedom Main Radio was so much better when, like, he oh, did it from his car. Like, I don't know today. <laughs> I totally <laughs> sold out. <laughs> nobody's, nobody's ever said – has anybody ever said that to you? <laughs> oh, yeah. What? Are you serious? Yeah. No way. I, I like – you know, he just – he seemed more open and more personable and more relaxed with himself when he was just doing it to a smaller audience from a car. So, oh, that's the word. Okay, so a good word is chill. It's just a lot more chill. Like, now it's not, it's not chill anymore. It's not the same. You know, that Steph guy, I mean – now that he's got a big audience, he's hit like 100 million show downloads. I mean, it's just a different thing. He just – he can't obviously be the same guy that he was at the beginning. And look, if you get that much success and you get that many people listening to you, I mean, how could you be the it same changes, person? Right? It changes you, bro. It does. It changes. And, and the thing is, you're not even aware of it. Right. Like you from the know. inside, you just look like you're doing the same thing. But I'm telling you, as someone who's been listening from the beginning, you've changed. Yeah, it's, it's just not – it's not the same. Now, you'll notice that basically it's just a cannon full of adjectives that they fire at you hoping that something will right. stick. Right, Nobody right. can actually quote you anything in particular. Right. Well, tell me how. Tell me how. How did I change? What well, I you know, it's, it's, just, it's just a feeling. It's a gut instinct. You can take it or leave it. I'm just trying to give you that kind of feedback. So basically they back away and claim instinct because you know, that works so well in, say, fucking science. You know, you know I, I disagree with the theory of relativity. I just – it's my instinct. Like I have a gut feeling that that you can't 
freeze time by going really fast. That's what my gut says. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. Yeah, I don't like the way it, does, it feels. It doesn't, it doesn't sit well with me. <laughs> like, what is it, a dog that won't obey you? Like, this right. is like, I mean, I just, I am more than happy to, um, you know, to take criticism and feedback, of course, right? But I, I simply will not, I have no patience for people who just give me their gut without, you know, like if you haven't taken the time to figure out what your gut is telling you, then basically you might as well just shovel me some of your lower intestine bacteria <laughs> in a handshake and say that you're making me better. Like, don't like. It's just, it's the endless appeal to insecurity, you know. You've, you've just changed, man. You just, you know, well, <laughs> I hope so. It's been eight years. So let me, I just, one other thing I wanted to say just before we move on. Uh, I do want to do the last topic, but it's one other thing I wanted to say about these kids. Sure. <clears throat> I have a lot of sympathy for teach. I'm sorry about my voice. Um, I know it sounds a bit rough, but um, I have, I have like a weird half cold. I think it's a cold I've had before. So my body knows how to fight it, but it's not exactly a KO. Anyway, but um, yeah, so look, I have a lot of sympathy for teachers in a lot of ways because teachers do a lot, as you know, of wrangling the mistakes inflicted by parents on early childhood. Yeah, man. You know, here's my broken brain child. Now teach him something. Good luck. <laughs> like, could you maybe send us some non-broken <laughs> children? No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, so, you know, when you have parents pressuring, yelling at, confining, punishing, you know, and there's a lot of this, like even when they don't, even when parents aren't hitting. Mm-hmm. You know, I see a lot of this, um, this, this like heavy call in the estrogen based airstrike of of guilt and disapproval. I'm yeah, yeah. I'm disappointed. Yeah, I'm I'm so disappointed with you kids. You know what the right thing to do is, and you just decided on your own, off your own initiative. You just decided to do this. I am so disappointed with you children. I don't even know what to say. I'm just – I'm going to go and put a burlap sack over my head, and I'm going to be in the corner here, and I want you guys to just think about what you've done. Oh, yeah. No, it's brutal. Yeah, man. And it's like – it's that to me is like – I mean it's like this this giant womb club. It's like hitting someone with a giant jellyfish of guilt. Exactly. You a know? big padded velvet club. Yeah, and it's like I didn't hit them, yet psychically I have crushed their souls. Yeah, feel it's so soft. This doesn't hurt. Yeah. 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 I mean, this way you don't have to go to the ER. You just go to a therapist in 15 years, right? <laughs> I mean, that's and, – and so there's a lot of – a lot of and that stuff, that stuff I think has – you know, is really, really crippling for, for initiative. And um, It happened to me, man. No, was that your experience of like uh, – I thought we'd agreed on how this was going to go and you just decided to do it – Yep, 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 yep. When I started my business like three years ago from my dad, I got, you got to knock off this free market shit. And then from my mom, like she didn't really say much. Well, I hope it works. And um, then before I came here, I thought about becoming like this uh, accountant for this group of like startup restaurants. And I told her I was all excited. Like, mom, guess what? I just I just applied to be the uh, executive accountant for blah, 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 this chain. Well, you're not an accountant. (sighs) Bye bye. Yeah. So yeah, but go go on. You were saying about the kids. Well, so there's a lot of this. Um, I'm very disappointed in you. So even when there's not this direct aggression, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, again, I'm going to generalize about women. It's not so not true of all women, but <laughs> please go for it. I, no, I, I do that so people know what to cut out. Okay. 
<laughs> right. Now, if, if you're going to slice and dice this podcast up to make me sound bad, I'm going to actually just going to start inserting beeps into the podcast so that people know. I'll give them time to down. slice. You should do it. Yeah, do it for them. Do it for yeah. them. Okay. This does not apply to all women. It's a gross generalization. There are many exceptions, and it's not philosophically proven. Beep. Okay. Now, right. Um, so, so it's a weird, and I don't, I don't get how this exactly works or happens, and I can't imagine what this is like. Look, Michael, you get upset at things, right? Yes. Do most people give a shit? Mm, kind of. Yeah. Okay. Well, not, maybe not so, most, but like people around me. Right, but I mean, does everyone like stop what they're doing because you're upset? Um, no. I don't mean if you're crying and beating your head. No, into a no, country, no, 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 like no. If you come in and you're upset, right, the people no. are like, "Well, Michael's upset." Everyone. Oh, everybody, hold on, stop. hold on. Stop the traffic. Holy stop shit! Stop the clouds. <laughs> Make rain freeze in midair. Nobody moves. Michael's upset, and until Michael is no longer upset, we the world better stop turning. Now, everyone oh, yeah. focus on Michael. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. And so for, for guys, I'm upset. You know, people may care, they may not, but the world doesn't stop, right? But women have this, like, weird spell. It's like a freeze time, freeze balls, freeze heart spell called I'm upset. Well, I'm upset. I'm very disappointed in you. It's like, well, thank you. Sharing your subjective experience, I don't, you know, I mean, like there's this, there's this couple of, I, sorry, I know we're drifting around a lot, but I sort of wanted to, to get this point across because you're dealing with a lot of the fallout of this, right? Because when, when you say to moms, don't hit, but they don't listen. they're like, oh, yeah, that's fine. You know, I've got backup compressed Jewish matriarch guilt blow dart. That I could use. So, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, and, and that, in some ways, I think makes it even more difficult for uh, for teachers because, okay, well, you know, we're not going to hit anymore. I'm just going to sit my fat ass of guilt on their head until they asphyxiate. Right, and I don't want to do that. No, you don't. But of course, there's some fallout that that is like it, it happens for kids where I don't want to disappoint. Like men don't have that power. Where right. I'm upset, therefore other people must change. Uh-huh. Right? Whereas women do have this, because, you know, when women are upset, you know, the, they say happy wife, happy marriage kind of thing. Does, does anyone ever say, well, you know, if the man's happy, the marriage has got to be great? Of course not. Of course not, right? Everyone's just focusing on, are the women happy? Is she happy? Is she happy? Is she, if she's not unhappy, go in and bring your mother a tea. Make her feel better. You've got to go over there and talk to her. She looks really upset. Yeah, listen, whatever you said, whatever you said is really upsetting to her. Just apologize, dude. Yeah, just apologize. I don't care what for. <laughs> or like that old, there was some old drabble joke where the, the man husband comes up and says to his wife, listen about that thing earlier. I'm, I'm, I'm totally sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I really, really apologize. And she says... Well, I guess that's okay then. And the son says to his dad, what was that for? He says, well, I don't know. I just do that a couple of times a day. <laughs> Sadly oh. true. Yep, no, <laughs> I true. know. And so, um, <clears throat> like, I'll, I'll give you a tiny, a tiny example that is it's fairly big. So 
there have been two uh, allegations of rape that have been clouded in controversy recently. One is a woman who told her story to a Rolling Stone reporter that she – I'm just going off memory here, so uh, I was um, – so she was, I think, at, at UVA, and, and she was at some frat party, and she was invited upstairs. And when she went in, she says, you know, some guy punched her in the side of the head, knocked her down onto a glass table, which broke. And then she was raped by seven guys for three hours, including with a beater bottle. Right? Okay. Now, when she told the story to this reporter, she said, I want to tell you, but you can't contact any of the, ra- any of the rapists. Okay. So they published the story, and then I think Breitbart sent some – Breitbart.com sent some reporters out or sent some investigators out and uh, or started doing some investigations. Uh, oh, no, that was for – oh, no, sorry. The Breitbart thing was for the Lena Dunham stuff. But um, it turns out uh, that there was – like the frats have to register their parties. Okay. Uh, and there was no party that weekend. Uh, she also said it was during rush and there was no rush that whole month. God damn. And uh, she, she gave some details about – one of you know the assailant and they don't match right so the the story seems to be falling apart she told one woman it was five guys and now she's saying it's seven and right that's just a mess oh and she also she also says that uh, apparently rape is part of the initiation or yeah no it's part of the initiation of this frat right because <clears throat> remember you see society doesn't work very well at oppressing a group that gets together and talk, which is why there are no male groups allowed in society. Right? You, you can't have an all-male club. You can't... I mean, the Shriners and the, uh, you know, the, those, the, all those clubs, they're all gone. You, because men can't get together and talk, because otherwise we might realize that we're actually pretty fucking oppressed. And so, you know, the reason that people are against France is because it's a place where men get together and, and talk about their and, and they gain stuff, yeah. with other men, and hang out and you know, they they might actually say to each other, "Listen, you know, <laughs> gotta watch out for uh, yeah, alimony and child support and and unequal sentencing and circumcision and all that sort of shit." Like men might actually get together and have have strength. I lived <clears throat> twice in a frat house. I never joined a frat. But I lived twice in a frat house. They're pretty nice guys. I'm t- I'm just telling you my personal experience. Yeah, they had some kooky and silly initiation rituals, but you know, nice guys. They invited me to join. I said, "No thanks." We all got along really well. Yeah, same with me. Same with the people that I've known. Some are dickheads, but most are just good guys. So that's that's the one that's sort of and, – and Rolling Stone has basically said our trust in this story. Uh, the, the, the woman who told the story, our trust was misplaced. I think they then backed away from that statement. And the other one is <clears throat> Lena Dunham who claims that she was raped by a campus Republican at some college and she gave – and she like gave – A Republican. Uh, yeah, well, the fact that she gives his political – affiliation is not accidental yeah she writes this hbo series and an, an accident called girls which is oh i know that show view, yeah in my view that is literally it's it's a sign of the apocalypse that, that show, show. Sucks. well i mean it is unbelievably disturbed so anyway she so she claimed this in a recent autobiography wherein she's been criticized also for graphic depictions of sexual abusing sexually abusing her sister and she said, oh, this guy, you know, he had a mustache, he had purple cowboy boots, uh, he did a radio show, and like all these identifying details. Like I think he worked in a library or something. Anyway, so – anyway, people have gone out and tried to track this guy down, and they can't find anybody who matches that description, although there is some poor guy who was a prominent Republican whose name is Barry, which is the same – and and <clears> – <throat> 
she she says that um, at the beginning of the book she says oh you know it's you know nothing is real blah 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 of course it's a memoir not a work of fiction and early in the book she has a asterisk with beside someone's name where she says at the bottom oh this name has been changed and she doesn't have that on the Barry guy's name and uh, her story seems to be falling apart in that nobody can find anybody who matches the description of the man that she's uh, she's talking about and um, well I don't know I don't know what the story okay, is okay but it sure I'm, sounds I'm, like it he had a big shirt on and he wore an elephant mask and he told me, hey, guess what? I'm a Republican. So therefore, don't vote Republican next election, 25-year-olds. Yeah, well, no, I get it. It is, uh, you know, pretty standard left trashy kind of crap and all that. And I mean, I – but but here's, here's what I'm talking about in terms of men and women. This is sort of the point of, of what I'm saying. Yes, it's finally happened. Um, but uh, – <clears throat> the point of what I'm saying is that I must have read <clears> – <throat> just looking for this, I must have read like two dozen articles on this. And with maybe one or two minor exceptions uh, – and, and those are the articles focus, focusing specifically on Barry and his potential defamation lawsuit against Lena Dunham and so on. Um, everybody is writing about the Rolling Stone – I was raped in a frat house on broken glass table for three hours. And I mean, to me, that would like you, you're on broken glass. Like you'd need like incredible stitches. You'd like, I mean, you'd be lacerated down to the bone. I mean, you'd be, you'd lose blood like crazy, but it's supposed to be visceral and make you recoil from the story. Right. Dudes. Yeah. 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 And, And you always have to be careful when a narrative fits too close to a stereotype. Right, like evil frat guys. I mean, we went already went through this with the lacrosse group rape allegations. This Crystal Mangum stuff, you know. Oh, frat guys. Dudes. Well, so so, but here's the thing, right? So every article that's not focusing specifically on this Barry guy for Lena Dunham, every article has said basically this: this is a, a, a great tragedy because it will be harder for women to come forward. This is a great tragedy. Because it means that women may be less believed in the future. This is a great tragedy, you see, because how it may potentially negatively impact women in the future. So shitty, dude. God damn. But that's what I mean. Like the women are upset, and and we have like the idea that it's a little fucking more serious for these men who are accused of rape doesn't enter anyone's mind. No. Like the fact that the men. Are f- like this this Barry guy. I mean, the doesn't seem to have anything to do with it. The guy's got a job. He's got a career. I mean, he's got he's got a wife. He's got kids. Like holy shit. Like the the fact that it's like no, this is bad because you are falsely accusing or potentially falsely accusing someone of the crime second only to murder. And no, no I, nobody seems to be able to pro- – it's like, oh, well, you see, this could be bad for women in the future because uh, how about the guys right now? Like all of the frat activity was suspended on the campus. Yeah. How about all those guys? Uh, uh, yeah. How about the, the, the guys who – you know, they, they now waiting for every phone call about, like, is this going to be some – the cops? Every time the phone rings, their heart's starting to race. Every time they go to class, they're just so, like – 
fucking like either pissed off at everybody or hyper paranoid like if people look at them like shit did that person like do they know who i am what are they are they thinking that i'm a rapist now at least that's what i think i would be like in that situation so the idea that this is that 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 it's the the men's experience feelings and fears that would be what anybody would focus on it's not even mentioned in passing you know oh plus it's bad for the guys like it's not it's just not part of anyone's processing of this it's like well but you see we got to focus on how this might affect women in the future dude the u.s fucking sucks in that way i mean can i i want to put a plug in for china like i've been here for six months and in a lot of ways it's you know not even in a lot of ways in a few ways it's like you know retarded their culture is really really strong and like it's tough to like get through to them on some level in that regard but in a lot of ways the people here are just so much more open-minded and friendly and maybe it's just because i'm a foreigner but like talk i was talking to a coworker, a girl about like alimony and like what it's like in the u.s for guys and she said that's not fair that doesn't seem fair and um and then, like, she even said, yeah, I, I, I agree. It's very difficult to be a guy in a lot of ways, and most people don't see that, but I do. And then, like, talking about, like, government or economics, I got a Chinese parent who was talking about, like, the GOV, and I don't, I don't know. I know they're recording everything, so I'll just keep it blasé. But just, like, we were talking about some activities, and um, I was being diplomatic and said, well, you know, maybe they're there could either be really stupid and have the good intentions or they could be like crooked. I don't know. It's tough to know. And she said, it's they're crooked. They're evil. They're just stealing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's what's more prevalent in society, rape culture or alimony culture? Alimony culture. Of course. Yeah. Anyway, listen, uh, you had one other topic you wanted to dip into before we move on. Yeah, I don't really want to talk about that right now. I was just, I don't know, it's kind of a, I do, but I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. It's completely. Okay, well, listen, listen call back in. I mean, a very, very enjoyable chat. And uh, obviously, Michael, you're welcome uh, anytime. Uh, I hugely appreciate the exposure that, that kids have to you. Thanks, man. You know, wherever you are. It's also nice to be working in a culture where you're not considered a pedophile for enjoying working with kids. Dude, seriously. I mean, it's so much better. I want one more plug. For any dude, like, working with kids, like, I worked in a school for two years in the U.S., and I was so scared. Like, the kids were my best buddies because I was nice to them, unlike all the other dickhead teachers. And from the other teachers, like, you got to be careful. You just be careful. Just be careful. Just be careful. Keep the door open. No hugs. Blah, blah, blah. Ah, dude, it's so ridiculous. So anybody who's going through that type of thing, just get out of the U.S. Fuck that shit. You are young, and the U.S. is fucked, and it's so much better being out of the bubble. Like, I don't really know any of the, like, current event type of stuff that you do, and it's just so much. Like, it's it's nice to, like, dip in every now and then to get your take on the latest retarded culture stuff, and it doesn't really make <laughs> me mad. Like, it just makes me like, oh, that's that sucks, but I'm glad that nobody else is talking about that over here because – Nobody has a clue. Anyway, so yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll... it will it will literally take generations for the scar tissue of this hyperpolitical correctness to ease. I mean, there's been such damage that has been done, particularly between gender relations. Uh, such unbelievable amounts of damage has been done. Uh, this this you know you you cannot break the family up without breaking up hearts. You you cannot uh, you know make make everyone reliant on the state without destroying. The family unit, and you cannot destroy the family unit without breaking everyone's heart. And uh, it is um, 
it is unbelievable the amount of damage that has been done between the genders. And uh, it, it will take generations, even if things were to reverse tomorrow, it would take generations to heal. Yeah, I I want to not believe that, but I like or I I know I, I I you're you're exactly right. And a couple of years ago, I would have thought like, no, no, it's you know it's possible to fix it now. But you're right, it sucks. All right, well, thanks, Michael. Appreciate your call. Uh, feel Thank free you, to call back in any time and keep up the great work with the kids, man. They are lucky to know you. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, man. You're such a good person. Th- same same Thank to you. you, Mike. Thanks, man. Bye bye. All right. Thank you, Michael. Up next is Michael. <laughs> Michael H is up next. He wrote in and said, "Do you consider Nietzsche to be an authoritarian?" <laughs> well, what do you mean by authoritarian? Um, I guess my response is basically to what Patrick Byrne, the CEO of Overstock.com, mentioned in a Bitcoin presentation. Um, that the overman or the Zarathustra, which is Nietzsche's overman, um, is somehow related to an authoritarian kind of perspective, not a, not as an individual. Yeah, you you just used the word authoritarian without defining it when I asked for a definition. So okay, well, it isn't. I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to try again. Yeah, it, it well, it isn't the economic perspective, which was kind of what that speech was about. But um, that the authoritarian that not not an individual free agent, but rather you know a s- submissive role to the po- the power of the state, which it would be because he doesn't have a a power of the religion over him. Okay, but but tell me what your understanding is of a Nietzsche Superman or Superman. The yeah, the what overman. What is it to you? Because I mean, it's not like there's some massive syllogistical definition. There's no. a lot of adjectives which are cool and attractive. But uh, what what do you get out of that? Well, yeah, and that and that's kind of what was troubling me about it is because I liked Nietzsche. And I, you know, I don't want to 100% subscribe to any ideology, but um, I thought it was good, and I didn't think he was an authoritarian. And I thought that that overman or the Zarathustra could could perhaps be um, his personal reasoning over maybe the um, you know desires to have pleasure, the humanly desires. Like the, that's kind of a description that you've used with the. Um, frontal lobe and I thought that that could possibly be his overman meaning kind of like your reasoning because another part about Nietzsche's life that may be disputed or not is that he um, didn't didn't want to take the easy way out you know rather than than uh, conforming maybe facing the hard truths and that did lead to his kind of isolation too all right Still not sure what you mean by authoritarian. Ah, uh, okay. I mean, if you said dictatorial, I'd you know, well, I, I'd put that more in the camp of of Plato's heroes. You know, the philosopher kings is like we can't explain to you why you need to obey us, but you need to because we are enlightened and you are not. Uh, yeah, because that that would be sort of dictatorial. But I'm not sure authoritarian is kind of loosey-goosey. It's like fascism light, and I just, I'm not sure what that really means. Okay. I'm not sure that I do either. 
Well, that's important. Do you view the uh, Superman – it sounds kind of weird because I just think of Christopher Reeve in tights. But do you – let's call him what? The Ubermensch? The it's the because it, you know it's beyond man. In his, uh, yeah. it's not over man. It's not Superman. It's not dominating man. It's beyond man as he existed in the 19th century. That he was, um, that Nietzsche was talking about. It's it's you know, Uber Deutschland Deutschland Uber Alice. You know, like the Deutschland Deutschland Uber Alice. The the, the national anthem. Deutschland Germany Germany over everyone. Yeah yeah, that's great. Never caused any problems before. Well, but yeah, in this context. Um, it, it's um, beyond. So some people say it's Superman. Some people say beyond man. But it doesn't mean dominating man, because I, yeah. because the, the Superman comes back. Zarathustra comes back and re, and tries to 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 enlighten people. That's not dominance, right? I agree. He doesn't he doesn't come back and try and raise an army of the undead to take over mankind and have them read his thoughts, right? Yeah, and I don't believe that he was, you know, so fond of that culture in Germany, and actually was more of a critic. But some, oh god, yeah, some people, oh god. Uh, he hated, he hated yeah. the culture. Yeah, I mean, God, all philosophers are supposed to hate culture. I mean, well, God, it's like you know, Jesus seemed to have a bit of a problem with the devil. I don't know what that was all about. It's like they're opposites, right? Good point. And yeah, I mean, any philosopher who doesn't loathe culture, I mean, I would argue, and I've argued before, I won't get into it now, just doesn't understand either philosophy or culture. Okay. Culture is lies reinforced by time. And that is uh, something which, because the, culture makes lies plausible through exposure to time. And uh, it, it makes prejudice seem like physics intergenerationally. And so it is the most dangerous opponent of philosophy because it feels the most credible to the average person. Okay. And that's just by looking around, you know, the social groups. I mean, the conformity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, so for, for Nietzsche, what, what is one of the first things that Zarathustra or the overman came back, came back and said, God is dead. God is dead. And, and that, was not so much, I think, a statement of atheism. I think what it was, because an atheist would never say God is dead. Yeah, because God never existed to the atheist, right? Well, that's like, that's like teaching a kid there's no Santa Claus by shooting Santa Claus. Yeah. yeah. You know, if there's a body, then he was here, right? I mean, help me hide the body of Santa who doesn't exist. I mean, that wouldn't make any sense, right? That's right. So... I, I, I would never go forward and say, God is dead, of his pity of a man, hath God died? Or, uh, what, But what he meant by God is dead is that there is, there is no external kabuki of values that organizes your life. You are not a bit player in a cosmic drama. You are not the deciding vote in a Manichaean Manichaean dual, duality of war between good and evil. You are not being tempted by the devil and worming and biting and chewing your way towards the divine. Uh, no, nobody outside you is obsessed with you. Because that, that's the weird thing about – I mean this is the, the, the pattern between democracy and 
theology is that in both of these systems, people really care about you who otherwise wouldn't. I mean, the, one of the weird things about democracy is that you have to appeal to the vanity of the average fool in order to get his vote. You have to figure out what he wants. You have to poll him. You have to figure out what he likes. You have to pander to him. You have to focus. So you've got people of incredible intelligence, skill, and ability, and politicians certainly fall into those categories. Notice I didn't say virtue. And they have to really, really care about what the average man thinks. What do the soccer moms want? What are the 18 to 35-year-old Hispanics? What, what, is their, what are their big-ticket issues? And you have to pander to these people, and, and you have to figure out what they want, and you have to craft your message to appeal to them. In other words, you have to really care. I mean, you don't care about them as individuals, but you care about them as, as resources At least that, that, get you, that give you power. And that is a wonderful treat for the average person. They get to feel special because politicians are focusing on them. And it's a shitty specialness, and it's incredibly destructive to everyone involved. But yeah, you know, Barack Obama's coming to my – he's doing a town hall. He's coming to my town. He's going to answer questions. I'm going. He, he really wants to know what I think. I'm going to write to my congressman. He's going to have to write back. He's like, so, so people who otherwise would not really gain much focus from – people like politicians do. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, Disney, of course, does a lot of test marketing for their movies and, and shows and all that kind of stuff, too. But there's something in particular about democracy that plays to the vanity of the masses. And it may be- since, since the masses are so ridiculous, and, and I say that not out of any prejudice, because I am ridiculous in almost all endeavors of human skill or, or capacity. I can't build a guitar. I, I can't do dentistry. I, you know, it just, there's so much that I'm, I'm, I can't play any instruments What's with any competence. <clears throat> yeah, the I can think, but, <laughs> but, but that doesn't put corn on the table, right? I mean, so, uh, but, but, so, so that's, well, and, and the other thing is that in, in religion, in religion, supernatural beings are obsessed with you. Yeah. You're, you're like, you're like the hottest girl at the bar stuffed to the gills with pickup artists, right? Because, because Satan really wants your soul, man. He's, he's thinking so hard, his horns have electrical arcs going between them. Satan really cares, 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 and is obsessed with getting your soul. And God is obsessed with bringing you home, bringing you to heaven, stay on the straight and narrow. They did the most majestic, enormous, powerful omniscient beings in the whole universe are really focused on you. So that, I mean, that reminds me of the advertisement industry as well. And it's kind of like playing to the insecurity. So create, if, you, if there's enough insecurity, they're going to need to buy. Uh, they're going to buy into the saving as well. Yes, and, and, the, and to me it all comes from whatever is left hollow within you will almost certainly be filled up by corruption. Right? Whatever needs whatever needs whatever foundation or fundamental needs remain unmet within you, evil people will offer to meet them for you. Right? And so this is why and I focus so much on, on parenting, particularly infancy and early childhood, 
If you have a strong and secure bond with your parents, then you don't have a void, a loneliness, a lack of attachment, a need within you that other people can go fishing in and pull out your very heart. Yeah, and end up in a bad relationship, yeah. Oh, you end up in, 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 the, in the military, you, you end up in the police, you end up um, cheering whatever local political leader there is, you end up cheering for war. You end, I mean, so if, if we have our needs met when we are uh, little, well, I mean, you're spot on. We, we don't, you know what it, it's like? It's like if we have our needs met with little, when we're little, <clears throat> then people can't give us plastic food and tell us to eat it and be full. Because we know what real food is and, and we don't, like the fake stuff doesn't, like the the fake unity of of the empty crowd doesn't appeal to us because we've actually had our needs met. You know, it'd be like, I mean, let's assuming you're some non-neurotic man and somebody says, you can have sex with this wonderful, sexy woman or I'm going to give you a flashlight, which apparently is some penis pump thing that you can pretend to have sex with, right? Well, why would you... <laughs> Why would you take the fake thing uh, over the real thing? Well, you, you wouldn't. And this is why governments are perpetually trying to get children away younger and younger and younger from their parents. Yeah. Because if you can get the kids away from their parents, the kids grow up with unmet needs for connection and unity and what Freud called that oceanic feeling of oneness with the universe, but comes from being cradled in your mother's arms when you're a baby and being cooed to and being played with. And and if you don't, if you grow up without that... You're alien. You feel like you don't feel like a complete picture. You feel like a small piece of jigsaw puzzle that needs to fit into something bigger. <clears throat> like here in Canada, they're trying to get you know the universal daycare. It's like, oh yeah, we'll get you to you know we'll we'll get you away from your parents that much sooner. I mean, that's building block one hundred one for for power. So I mean, back to Nietzsche. Um, so Nietzsche said because Nietzsche said God God is dead, and what that means is. I think uh, – there's a lot of interpretation in Nietzsche, but, but what yeah. I think he was meaning was that values are no longer provided to you by synthetic drama. Yeah. Right? In other words, you're not going to be bribed and you're not going to be punished in your life choices. That, that no, super what nasty. he called the revaluation – what he called the revaluation of all values is if God is dead – and it's something which is very hard for us to understand because – God has been dead for a lot of people for a long time. But if God is dead, you're not on stage anymore. You're not even in the audience. There's no theater anymore. Nobody's giving you your lines. Nobody's looking over you and saying, well, if you do this, you go to hell. If you do this, you go to heaven. And if you pray, you do this. There's no one who is, who is inflicting values upon you in a way that can scarcely be called voluntary. And so that was the sort of basic question, which is, Okay, so how is humanity going to transition itself from being force-fed values at the fiery point of a theological weaponry? How is mankind going to survive? What is the hangover going to be of the death of God? How is humanity going to survive when it is no longer obsessed by imaginary beings and is no longer forced and threatened and cajoled and bribed 
into accepting, quote, accepting values, when it's no longer value rape, what is, what is going to happen? Now, his big concern was nihilism. And this was a huge concern in the 19th century as a whole. When you stare into the abyss, the abyss also stares into you. Or he also said, be careful when you fight monsters that you do not become yourself a monster. He was concerned that with the death of God, it's not an abstract thing that is removed from the sky that was never there and people just basically go on. In other words, he didn't say that God is a manifestation of an underlying human desire for virtue which will then be fulfilled in some other manner, right? Like, so people say to me all the time, they say, oh, Steph, well, the state is a manifestation of our desire for power over each other. You get rid of the state, it's going to show up in some other form, and blah, 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 right? Mm -hmm. And so Nietzsche did not believe, I think... Like the neocons and in, in the universities that they, they drill us with, what the failed state is... Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So if the state collapses, you get yeah. a bunch of warlords and right yeah. and so on, right? Yeah. And they don't understand, of course, that that is just childhood and child abuse and right, just writ large and all that. But yeah. And and of course, religion. The the failed states always seem to occur in in religiously hysterical regions, to say the least. And so Nietzsche, he he didn't say, well, you know, we have this desire for good and and it's innate within us, and and we have this fear of evil, and that manifested itself in religion. He said, no, 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 that's, that's not how it works. How it works is that religion is an artificial structure that was imposed for a variety of reasons he goes into. We don't have to get into. It was imposed upon humanity, and it has defined what our values are. And when God goes and organized religion goes, there's nothing left in the moment. Right? It, it's not like you, know, you, you put a big rock in a river, the, r the river just goes around it. You put a rock in this river, it's no longer a river. It's not even a desert. It's interstellar space. So his concern was that when the death of God was truly understood in society, that the, the void created by the end of external values being imposed at gunpoint would lead to nihilism and people would recoil, recoil from nihilism and run into dictatorships. Yeah. I can't I can't live without being told what to do. Yes. And therefore when God dies, man gods must arise, be they Hitler or Stalin or Marx or Mussolini or like you you call the the, the atheists too that that have gone that route into into uh just turning the the civil authorities into their new uh gods pretty much. Oh, yeah, the idea that, that we flourish in the absence of aggression is incomprehensible to people. This is why when you elbow out God, you call in the next, dictatorship, yeah. you call in the left, right? Yeah. Hmm. And so, you know, what you've got to be ruled. It's either going to be supernatural or it's going to be secular, but you've got to be ruled either way. But that's just a cover-up for the tragedy of an unnecessarily aggressed against infancy and childhood. Is it? I mean, this is a little bit different, but similar. Is it possible? I mean, even with the the strongest family bond, is it possible to avoid the insecurities because of how heavily they are messaged in the in the mass media? I mean, uh, oh yes, absolutely. Look, the, I, I I say this glibly. I cannot provide empirical proof for it. Yeah, but absolutely. You know, the people who helped the Jews. 
were interviewed, right? People who helped the Jews in Nazi Germany were interviewed. And I believe it's almost to a person they were raised peacefully and benevolently. Wow. Okay. There is, is so much, and, and this is just, you, you can go into, I mean, you can look at the origins of war and child abuse, which is the free audio book I'm reading from Lloyd DeMoss at freedomainradio.com slash free. Just scroll down to the bottom. You can get the feed or, or listen directly. But if you have a strong bond with your parents, that creates within you something that is deeply rooted and unshakable. It doesn't mean it can't be killed or traumatized out of you as an adult. But the people who do well in war are the people who were raised more peacefully. The people who don't get addicted to drugs are the people who were raised more peacefully. The people who don't become criminals despite adversity are the people who were raised peacefully. I agree. And, uh, you know, the idea that... Um, I've heard your bomb in the brain speech. Yeah, you know some of the bomb in the brain stuff, right? Oh, yeah, and I'm halfway through uh, uh, real-time relationships. Right, right. And so w- when we have that bond, uh, you know, if, if, we, if we know that we are loved and treasured as children and people are genuinely interested in us and people re- we really enhance other people's lives – and we are, you know, welcomed and enjoyed and respected and valued. That's a nourishment that you can't ever starve from. It would be nice to know. It'd be nice to know that. Yeah. Thing. But yeah, I look at the and, and most of us don't. Most of us don't know what that is. Right. But um, fortunately, I mean, I, I I can certainly see it in my daughter. Do you allow? I mean, do you allow her to to see much of the media, television, or, or movies? Oh, television? No, uh, movies. She's not that interested in movies. She was when she was younger, right? And we watched a few, and um, she she enjoyed it. The thing is, now she's she she's writing her own stories now. Very good. And like, she's got this whole creative writing books, and she does uh, she does her stories, and she she makes her pictures, and. That's cooler than for her than, than going to watch a movie. Like, I haven't been able to take her to see a movie in the theater for like a year and a half. And um, she doesn't – just doesn't – she used to, again. But, but it's sort of like, um, like bands do cover songs and then they write their own stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And for her to be passively absorbing a story when she – it doesn't compare to her drawing and creating and writing her own stories – so she's she when she was younger, um, she watched a bit of a show, a, a TV station called Treehouse, and she liked a couple of uh, kids' movies, but um, it's not she hasn't wanted to watch that stuff in in forever. So uh, I mean, I'm certainly not going to say, well, no, you can't. But generally, she would prefer for me to tell her a story than to watch it. But there's sometimes where where she'd want it. I can put this on and we'd watch it. And but the important thing is is for me at least that the. Um, uh, the, the the movies shouldn't should not be passively consumed with children, but you you pause the movie. What do you think? This is what's happened. You make sure they understand it. Um, you make sure you know who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, and why. And and it becomes something that you you can share and t- and talk about. And I think that's the best way to to work with with those things. If that makes sense. Even even the more I mean, they aren't produced in Hollywood, are they? What the films my daughter yeah. watched? Yeah, some of them were for sure. Okay, 
I, it just seems so tough because this is a very, you know, quite scientific indoctrination tool. Yeah, but again, it does. If you've got a strong bond, it doesn't affect. You know, I mean, you know, she can eat peanut butter. She's not allergic to peanut butter, right? She can consume quote propaganda, but she's largely immune to it, if not completely immune, because of the strong bond. Just, I mean, look at the power of consumerism and how they drive that through the advertisement. And, and like you said, to to get a grasp of the people that that they're appealing to, how silly these commercials are. No, but the commercials only work because people haven't been loved. Like, when you haven't been loved, you have to... You have a huge yearning to be admired or to be lusted after or to be wanted yeah. or to make money. Yes. Right? <clears throat> All of that is just the sad echo... Or to save shouted into a canyon called no love. Save someone and maybe even perhaps sacrifice yourself to save someone else. Uh, I'm sorry, what was that? You you kind of feel like you you want to be a hero sometimes too. Like what do you mean? Uh, oh, you mean like oh yeah yeah. yeah. I mean white white knighting comes from not being loved. Yes yes yeah. Because if if you're not loved, then the only way that you can be found valuable in a relationship. Is through the for a man is through giving stuff, yeah, right. So if if you're not genuine, like if you grew up with a mom or dad and genuine didn't genuinely love you for who you are, then you always have to have utility to people. Okay, you have to basically, in the absence of intimacy, you have to be a business. Me plus, with that you were speaking. Yeah, me plus. Yeah. I mean, nobody. Like you, you go to a restaurant because they'll make you food and you give them money. Right? It's an exchange. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm a free market guy. It's perfectly fine. But that's not an intimate relationship. But um, for a man, I mean, the big question is for men, you know, what, what do women want from me? But that's the fundamental question of masculinity because men propose and women dispose. Men ask for relationships, ask women out. Women say yes or no. In general. And so this is, I mean, you've heard of, I don't know if you've heard of this sex, um, uh, this um, uh, men just abandoning relationships, leaving the um, uh, dating scene and so on. Yeah, because because men don't know what the hell. So men have been told, particularly white men, have been told for generations now that they really have nothing of value to offer. And in fact, they mostly bring danger and dysfunction to the relationship. You know, you, you, you're going you're gonna to hit me, you're going to rape me, you're gonna whatever, right? just yeah. crazy stuff. And the reason that it's very profitable for a lot of women to, to take that stance is that it gives them great power. You know, like if, if you're Brad Pitt, you have a lot of power in negotiations, you know, if, if you're Brad Pitt and you want a rewrite, you're probably going to get a rewrite. <laughs> but if you're some extra in the background and you raise a stink about how the scene's being shot, what are they going to do? Yeah, find a new extra. Yeah, fire your ass. <laughs> right? Just get off the fucking set, you lunatic. <laughs> right? Because you're not providing much value. And so if in a relationship, if you can convince the other person that the other person's not providing much value to you that you can take or leave them, I mean, you get all the power in that relationship. 
And of course, men have been displaced by the state and we get in all of this sort of stuff. But basically, yeah. there's this women, women can afford, like I'm watching um, uh, some of Aaron Sorkin's stuff. He's got this uh, teleplay called The Newsroom. The amount of verbal and physical abuse that the women heap on the men, staggering. I mean, it's it's like watching a Looney Tunes cartoon or, or an old Tom and Jerry cartoon. I'm waiting for someone to whip out a saucepan and hit a guy on the head with it. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they call them stupid. They call them idiots. They continually tell them to shut up. They hit them. They slap them. They push them. And, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Crazy. I mean, again, just reverse it. And, and see, everybody would go insane. So if you can convince men that they have very little to bring to the table for women, then women approach, like men approach, oh, can I please have a kid? I, I don't, you know, they're, they're like somebody who... That's basically where we are now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, because they're like some, some guy pushing a broom demanding a raise. Hey, man, yeah. you can be replaced. You're just pushing a broom. You know, Steve Jobs wants a raise. They're going to talk, right? The guy pushing a broom in the warehouse, he wants a raise. Well, I mean, and it's not even like men are not even perceived as, as offering that much. Men are actually perceived as a threat. Well, white men, which of course is not where threat comes to from women, but of course that's got to be obscured for obvious reasons, right? But um, so so this is where men are as as for the what do women want well they they want something that's the opposite of of this caricature of masculinity and to a degree don't i mean it seems like they also can they do they do get a little bit sick of that too even who a women might that have the 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 push around man or the the kind of white knighting man seemed like even after a while of that even after having all of the power they're not going to like it like they've molded the person into something that they they don't like and oh yeah you know yeah, be careful what you get for right? right i mean yeah yeah i mean the idea that uh, it's nice guys who get laid well i mean it's you know and i'm sorry get laid is a coarse way of putting it but there is that aspect to particularly a young man's approach but the idea that uh, nice guys is what women want is biologically untrue. And that doesn't mean that they want mean, abusive guys at all. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that. I mean, there are obviously some women who do, just as there are some men who do. But if you consistently and continually tell one half of a negotiation, like one party in a negotiation, that you don't need them, that they're crappy, that you'd be better off without them, and so on, wow, well... Uh, that is, uh, you know, why why would you bother? You know, why why would you bother? Why would you bother getting involved in in all that nonsense? And a lot of guys are are getting that. So they're fundamentally understanding that that uh, okay, well, like <laughs> they complain men don't listen. Well, men are starting to listen now. Men are starting to listen now. Oh, we're we're rapists. We're patriarchs. We're you know horrible people. We're Wife beaters and girlfriend beaters, we're insensitive, we're emotionally unavailable, we're workaholics, or we're lazy, we're failure to launch, we're just men boys, we're Peter Pans, we're... Okay, got it. You don't want us. Got it. It's okay. I can meet my physical needs with pornography, and I've got great male friends. 
And then the funny thing is, is that men who aren't interested in dating women, what are they told? You're a loser. You can't even date a woman if you'd wanted to, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that lures me back. <laughs> now, doesn't it, right? And it's, it's um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that men are listening now and, and taking what's being said uh, seriously. And I get that this is not what all women believe, and it's not even what all women want. It's not even what most women want. But it's sort of what they say about, like, radical Muslims. It's not the radical Muslims who are the problem. It's everyone else who's not calling them on it. The enablers, yeah. Yeah, and, and so until women start to oppose these, these radical third-wave feminist crap and say, you know, men, we need you. But, but the reason for that, I, I mean, it's manifold, right? And, and I think there are two main ones. One, of course, is that the state has replaced men as the providers, and therefore, you, you know, women can afford to be insulting yeah. because they're not reliant upon men's resources. And um, that's the uh, – I think that's the first uh, major reason why um, why this has all happened. And the second major reason why it's all happened is that uh, people uh, – society has yet to process how bad single motherhood is for for children. And single fatherhood, for that matter. But, you know, single motherhood is by far the majority. So, so once, like, even if you say, well, the government's paying for everything and therefore I don't need a man, once you get how unbelievably destructive single motherhood is for children, in, in particular, in particular, I'll tell you the worst configuration that I've ever seen. Worst configuration I've ever seen is single mom and single son. Single mom and an only son. I had a friend when I was younger who was the single son to a single mother. And he was uh, aggressive towards her. He'd push her up against walls. He was incredibly reckless with his own safety. Like he'd be put into dirt biking. And uh, he would take his dirt bike and just drive off walls and, and drive into walls and just incredibly reckless with his own life. He had, you know, all the compassion of a sociopathic vampire in many ways. Like, I was too poor to afford gloves. We'd go out in the cold and bike, and my hands would turn into these claws. And he'd have these big – he had played hockey. He had these big hockey gloves. And I, they were, I knew they were warm. I could almost taste that warmth. And I'd say to him, oh, man, can you just, you know, five minutes, give me your gloves. He's like, well, why didn't you bring yours? Which, like, that's the important – he knew. He knew I was broke. And uh, so we had this, we had this friendship for what, want of a better word, we had things in common we liked to do. We both liked model trains. We liked dirt biking. I was pretty young and all that. But anyway, the friendship came to an end in, in a strange way. I think I was maybe 12 or 13. And we'd been friends for a year or two. And we were biking back from somewhere at nighttime, and I was ahead of him. And I saw a rock on the sidewalk. It was big enough that if you hit it, it could, you know, skid your, you know, flip out or whatever, skid your bike. I was biking home and I had to swerve out of the way of this rock. And the guy, let's call him Bob, it's not his name, it's guy Bob. He um, got really angry at me because he was like, you cut me off and cut you off as you course, go right in front of someone and so on. And I said, no, you were tailgating. And this was like 
a giant conflict. You know, and, and I, you know, I knew he had a temper, but I was like, nope, you know what? No. <laughs> no. I wasn't like bottled up and I wasn't like, well, fuck you, man. I'm, I've just been building for this a year. I was like, <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't anything like that. It was like, well, no. No, listen. I said, look, I had to swerve. If you were so close to me that that's a problem for you, it's not me cutting you off. You were tailgating. You were too close to me. And I, I wouldn't back down. Didn't yell at him or anything, but I was like, nope. <laughs> no. And he had such an inability to handle conflict that he actually kind of went crazy. And, and I, that sounds like a strong – but like, like kind of went crazy. Like I basically just – I just had to – like he was like picking up his bike and he was throwing it down uh, on the ground in a parking lot of the mall at like 10 o'clock at night. I mean he was like screaming and, and like I, I actually – I had to get on my bike. I had to bike home. And I had to go in – we live in an apartment building. I had to go in quickly, close the door behind me. I, and up at the balcony, I, was, I could still hear him screaming down like, – like, holy shit. Yeah. The guy was crazy. And, I mean, obviously that was it. I don't have anything to do with the guy from then on in. And he sort of plaintively called me a while later. Of course, these are the kind of people who can never acknowledge or apologize and therefore I don't you know, get, in, get re-engaged or re-involved. And, I mean, this was a single mom, single mom. I'm not saying they're all, right, exactly. But I, I knew three or four of these guys, and man, man. And this guy um, died. He's dead, long dead now. I read about it in the newspaper. He, was, uh, he, got a, you know, he graduated from dirt bikes to motorcycles, was still as reckless as ever, and uh, he was decapitated. On his motorbike. Uh, horrible, horrible stuff. And uh, I, I won't get into all the other stories of, of the single moms and single, right, that I knew. But, oh, man, it was, uh, it was horrible. Uh, and, and they really don't date. You know, because they've already been married by the time they get to be 18 for 18 years, right? So it's, uh, it's really – and, again, I'm not saying that, that – Obviously, the kids of all single moms don't turn out this way and so on, but that in particular, the single mom, single son combo uh, is, is, seems to me to be pretty, pretty bad. And so even if – like women can say, oh, you know, man, bunch of rapists and patriarchs and whatever, like whatever the message about idiots, fools, bumbling people who can't get it together and so on, right? The Homer Simpsons. Yeah, the Homer Simpsons. I mean, you name it, right? Hilbert. I mean, just name the sitcom, yeah. right? Name the, name the movie. And there's just become this, you know, this cliche, you know, like um, this cliche of, of, you know, the the woman in tight jeans and tank top who's like the punk girl in video games who's, you know, knows how to do everything and handle everything and can do everything just like a man can do, even though women have 40% less upper body strength than, than men, right? It's just become this cliche. You can't, like, you know, women are tough and strong and, and don't need men and so on. Yeah, well, but... And it doesn't it, – fundamentally, it's not even about gender. I mean I think that boys need fathers. Of course they do. Right? Of course they do. But if, it was, if it's a gay couple that has three kids or two kids or even one kid, if that gay couple splits up, I'm like, well, that's bad, right? Because now there's only one parent in the house. And when there's only one parent in the house, you can't play hot potato. I got to get something done. Can you watch the kids? Right? I got to get something done. 
kids got nothing to do. Now, in my day, I mean, there was 12-inch black and white TVs, and we never had one that worked very well. They always had these weird intergalactic ripples going up the top and bottom. There's nothing on TV, so uh, you had to sort of make your own fun. But now, of course, it's like, you know, here's your 40-inch TV and your iPad and, and so on, right? And these kids are just not getting the connection. And a lot of it has to do with the single-parented stuff. So Very interesting. It is, it is very – it's incredibly tragic how – the value of men and of masculinity has just been scrubbed from society. And, and not just scrubbed like it doesn't exist, but turned malevolent, turned dangerous, turned oppressive, turned rapey. And after this amount of propaganda and, and this amount of boys are stupid, let's throw rocks at them, I, I think men are – well, they're listening now, and they're accepting it. You know, I think with great sorrow. I don't think it's a conscious sorrow, but, I mean, it's one of the reasons why the birth rate is falling so much. Men are like, okay, okay, we got it. We got it. We're dangerous. We're disturbed. We're dysfunctional. We're immature. We're emotionally unavailable. We're oppressive. We're bad. Okay. So let us relieve society of our presence. And that to me is an eminently understandable, if not downright sensible thing to do. Well, hopefully not in a a self-destructive way. That might be similarly the way the young, you know, friend Bob felt with the recklessness. I mean, you might, you might not feel much of a purpose if you hear that enough. No, but it, I mean, from a larger perspective, it doesn't matter when, if it's self-destructive or not. Because when men check out a society, I mean, culture dies. Civil, I mean, well, okay, good, culture dies. Civilization dies. Yeah. I mean, and it would be the same thing if women checked out a society. I mean, if, if women just grew up hearing how bitchy and horrible and oppressive and dysfunctional, disruptive and rapey and, and beating and, and beady. And, and I mean, they'd be like, oh, man, men, men really seem to hate us. Men, men really okay. So, yeah, apply that to the narrative of the female oppression, uh, considering the the population of the world. Yeah, well, I mean, society, Western societies are way below replacement rates, way below replacement rates, and I mean, God, in China, it's in Japan, it's ridiculous. I mean, China's had this one-child policy forever, and now they've got this unbelievable, this inverted pyramid of a society. Where, I mean, it's insane. You know, it's like, I think 40, what, 40 workers for every retired person when Social Security came in in a couple of years. It's going to be three workers, including government workers, for every retired person. I mean, you me, it's, not, it's not even remotely sustainable. And when men check out a society, look, I mean, you just go through, as I've talked about in the Estrogen-Based Parasites podcast, just go through history. Go through history and figure out, and, you know, hate to put a race on it, facts are facts. You know, if you include Jews as sort of white, although a lot of Jews don't say, I'm not white, I'm Jewish, right? If you include Jews among sort of white males, I mean, look look and find stuff that wasn't invented by white males. Like, it's, I mean, there's obviously some stuff there, but it ain't much. And so when men check out a society, society stops progressing. 
men, I mean, are like the, the, the idea hamsters and the workhorses of society. When they check out, for reasons I completely and fully understand, it's a different world from when, than it was for me 30 years ago. I mean, when, when I was going to college in my, I think I was about 19 or 20 when I first went after I took some time off to make some money after high school. I mean, they just, this, I mean, it was starting, but this this general hysteria was was just not not there. And you know, like I, I don't ever remember being forced to attend a try not to rape class. Yeah. And uh, so I I I get it. You know, there are these experiments that are run that were run to try to create a mouse utopia. It never works. Right. Oh, all the food, all the sex, every the kids are all taken care of, the baby man. Never works. And what happens is the more you try and jig with the natural ebb and flow of mouse society, my society, the men generally check out and they spend their times napping and grooming themselves and observing the growing mayhem. And they're called the beautiful ones. And they sit outside of society and look in. And they don't engage in the hurly-burly of getting engaged and raising, getting married and raising kids and, and building communities. And I mean, they just don't. And I get it. I mean, you can only tell a fucking group for so long how horrible and hateful they are before they'll actually start listening. And, and listening not with, oh, I guess I am horrible and hateful. Like if some, you, you date some woman and then she breaks up with you or you break up with her, and she says, you know, I just hate you. You're a terrible person. Well, it doesn't mean you believe that you're a hateful and terrible person, but you accept that she feels that way about you. And you're like, okay, well, so it's over, right? <laughs> okay, I'm off, right? But the reality is that men can survive a single life much better than women. When women try to act like men, in particular with sleeping around, fairly significant number of studies, it really messes them up. And and there's obvious biological reasons as to why that would be the case with regards to the cost of an egg versus the cost of a sperm. But um, women do much worse without men than men do without women. And And that's really tragic. And that may change, of course, as I've talked about before, when the government runs out of money, suddenly the women are going to be all like, hey, men, come back. Come back. Yeah, right. We need <laughs> stuff. <laughs> hey, listen, I'm, I'm really sorry about that, you know, say half century of calling you all evil patriarchs and itchy-fingered rapists. I'm really sorry. We're so sorry that so many of you got sent to jail for false rape, rape allegations, and we're so sorry that so many women going through divorces, accused you of child molestation that was false, and we're so sorry. You know, boy, that was, woo, our bad. Now, here's some tits. Can you come on back? And uh, I don't think that uh, they're going to be like long-lost dogs in the woods who hear their owners' voices. I think that men are going to be like, nah, I'm good. I'm good. You know, good luck with all that. You know, maybe you can go and find the guy who gave you those two or three kids, and maybe you can try and find a way to lure him back into paying for all this shit. But I'm sorry the government ran out of money. But no, uh, sorry that – and, and this going to be – it's just going to be 
it's going to be horrible. And I, I for one, would, would not say to men, go, go white knight all this shit. Because once you have adjusted yourself to a particular kind of life and you've accepted and, and grieved maybe a, a life that you might have wanted around, around kids and, and family and so on as a man, once you've gone through that process and once you've mourned and grieved, then it's sort of like, it's sort of like this, like you, you had a loved father and your father died after a long illness and you buried him and you're out visiting his uh, grave and then like a fucking hand comes up out of the grave that's rotten and all that kind of you'd be like whoa no no that's not good i don't want you to come back to life you're dead i've grieved i don't want to know ah, get a priest right <laughs> and i think that's how it's going to be like when you know when the government runs out of money and women are like whoa whoa Oh, you know what? Uh, we can't really, <laughs> uh, we can't really get away with just insulting men because it turns out that we really kind of need them. And that is uh, that is going to be brutal for women. And you know, I'm sorry, but you don't get to insult and like half of humanity. Or allow others to insult without interference. You don't get to insult the honor and dignity and virtue of half of humanity for more than a half century and then just have them come back when you need them. I just don't think that's going to work and I think it's going to be unbelievably brutal. And what's going to happen is the daughters of these women are going to grow up and say, you know what, we really need men. Well, at that time, won't won't the the idealized propaganda become the you know looking at traditional things, kind of an ebb and flow now because that's where the stability is going to be. Right now, we're really on the downside to destabilization of the power that remains in a family unit. But that isn't very profitable. I mean, after it's been milked out and it's gone, they're going to need the wealth to be built back. Well, yeah, and and you know the the like all of these kinds of situations, as I talked about uh, a couple of years ago, and why men don't want to get married, people better fucking apologize, because the the tendency of a lot of people, I would say maybe slightly more women than, is to pretend nothing happened. And I, you know, I sort of counsel men out there. No, 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 no. You know, if you start to see this weird shift and men are now portrayed in a positive light and, and married life is, is, is happy and, and wonderful and so on, right? Um, that's like, no, we need an explicit apology as a gender. An explicit apology. Like, wow, you know, we really let some crazy feminists and, and white knights go to town on you guys like and we didn't do anything about it we're sorry and uh, until that apology comes you know i mean atlas shrugged had it wrong it's not uh, it's not the producers who go on strike it's the balls that go on strike it's the men who are going to go on strike 
And they're already going on strike in massive numbers, massive numbers. All around the, the world, men are, I mean, in, at least in the Western world and in the more developed economies, the men are going on strike. Because I don't think anyone should have the vote as an anarchist, but when women got the vote, politicians started replacing fathers and husbands. Because be, having a state means never having to say you're sorry and, and, and never being responsible for your own mistakes. You know, if, if you're some giant financial institution and you make a bunch of bad bets on real estate, well, fuck you, taxpayer, you're footing the bill. Now they're trying to push derivatives down to be traded in subsidiaries covered by the FDIC so that taxpayers will be on the hook for the next crash. I listened to that video this morning with the trends report. Uh... Terrifying stuff. Terrifying stuff. And so that they don't have to admit their faults. They don't have to admit mistakes. I mean, you got Jonathan Gruber recently grilled in, in front of congressmen and congresswomen because he basically said, yeah, we, we lied and we made it obscure because Canadian, like Americans, voters are idiots and they just vote for like, you know, we intentionally left this and that, right? They are authoritarians, a lot of them, <laughs> in the yeah. sense of that this one would be the definition that they, they would prefer to be told what to do. Than to have that. No, 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 no. Sorry, I mean, and I, I know that that contradicts a little bit of what I said earlier. No, they, they, they wouldn't be told what to do. They don't. They want stuff for free because they were not loved. Well, that too. I mean, yeah, you can be. You- no, no, because because look, I mean, to be told what to do. How did how how much luck did Scott Walker having to telling unions that they couldn't that they couldn't negotiate for future stuff. They could only negotiate for stuff in the present. He told them what to do. How did they react? They went. In, they went mental. They went crazy. And they opposed him and tried to get him. They got a recall election going and all that. So, so people. I mean, it's not like people want to be told what to do because if you, if you say to, uh, to, to if you say to public school teachers, you know, you're now going to be subject to free market forces. You know, you, you're telling them what to do. That this is how it's going to change. They go mental. People want free stuff, and why do they want free stuff? Because they don't think that they can earn it. And why don't they think they can earn it? Because they weren't loved and treasured. And I mean, love is the answer. And and a very specific kind of love, which is love from parent to infant, love, that is the answer. And um, it needs a two-parent household to achieve that. You you cannot, it's it, it, you know, given the time constraints, it's very it, it's functionally impossible to provide the same level of care as a single parent as there is for two parents. You know, all other things being equal. I mean, it, it's functionally impossible to provide the same level of care and attention to your children when you're a single parent than if you're two parents. And that's at the expense of the children. And so men, men and children just aren't being listened to because everybody's focusing on what women want. Because once women got the vote, in particular, everyone had to focus on what women want because that's what most men are programmed to do. And women, like all of us, want to keep the money when we win and get subsidized when we lose. And so women, um, if they marry right, then they obviously want that to be respected and and maintained. And if they marry wrong, then of course they want the government to give them money because the guy, you know, turned out to be a deadbeat or a wife beater or whatever, right? And they had kids with him and, you know, it's not their fault. And of course it's not the kid's fault. Uh, But, um, no, I, you know, I, um, 
I'm I'm very aware of the degree to which men are checking out. It's too much hassle. You know what what is what is the huge benefit of getting married, getting involved in relationships? I mean, yeah, you find the great woman. Yeah, I get it. Don't have to sell me on that, but. Make the case, you know, make the case for the average man facing a 50% divorce rate. Yeah, make the case. It's pretty damn tough to do. Hey, you want to get involved in a business? 50% chance of failure. And you might even, you know, a lot of you will hate the job even if it doesn't fail. And if you fail, you'll be on the hook for maybe a couple grand a month for the next 25 years. What do you think? Yeah, it's time to check out. But I wanted to mention something about kind of the divorced parents, too. I was going to run this by you. It it seems like neither neither one of them would like to be disciplinary in that situation, too, for fear that that they're going to be the mean parent or, you know, it just turns into kind of like a competition between the parents to win the child attention and when when the time with the child well yeah because most parents have with their children in the west these days a long distance relationship with their own children yeah and it's, you know if you've ever been involved in a long distance relationship you know the last thing you want to do is fight yeah exactly because you're not right you want to eat good food and yeah. you know run like a bag of minxes right I mean, that's, you know, you don't want to like, oh, I just, I, I just flew in. I'm here for the weekend. You know, let's have the best time ever. I mean, this is why it's so addictive and why it's, you know, so unrealistic. And that's why the same thing with affairs, too. I mean, you, you, you don't pay a hooker to fight with you about dinner, right? <laughs> and, and, and so with long-distance relationships, you are conflict-averse by, by its very nature. Because you have so little time together. I mean, if you fly out for the weekend, you spend the weekend flighting, fighting and you fly back, I mean, you really feel bad, right? And so because most parents, I mean, certainly parents who work, I mean, they have a long-distance relationship with their own kids because they have so little time together, which is unstructured. I mean, as I've talked about before, you get your kids up, you're hurrying them out the door, you go to work, you fight traffic to get them, you drive them home. And then you got to make dinner and you got to make sure they do their homework and then you got to bathe them if they're young and all that kind of stuff. And you got to get them ready for bed and, right? And maybe you got some chores to do. You got to buy some groceries. You got to, right? Clean up after dinner. I mean, there's no unstructured time. And so uh, parents have become, to some degree, I think, conflict averse, mm -hmm. which usually ends up with chronic conflict, right? I mean, to, to avoid conflict is to entrench conflict in so many ways. And I think it's uh, it's been really rough for family relations. I mean, fam I mean, it, it makes very little practical sense to have a kid if you're working. It, to me, at least I never wanted to do it. Um, I mean, what, why? I mean, it's not like you get all this quality time. You have a lot of expense. You have a lot of conflict. You have a lot of missed opportunities and you have a lot of missed events and you have a lot of stress and you will have a lot of constraints and you can't travel uh, and, you know, kids get sick, you're up all night. I mean, if you're not really enjoying your children's company in, unstructured, in an unstructured environment, like, God, I mean, why? Why Why would you? Why would you? Anyway, 
Listen, we got to do one more call, if that's all right with you. I really, really appreciate – I'm sorry we drifted so far, but uh, maybe we'll do um, more on, on Nietzsche uh, another time. But uh, great, great questions. I really appreciate the conversation. Very good. Thank you, Stefan. Bye. Thank you. All right. Next up is Nathan. Nathan wrote in and said, in my reading of UPB, um, I realized it did not include a proof for moral consideration or how to identify whether something, whether or not something was a factor in the realm of morality. A rock has no moral consideration, but a person typically does. Where exactly is the line drawn? <laughs> Where exactly is the line drawn? Why is exactly important to you? So, yes, I... Uh... I guess I threw the word exactly in there without thinking too much about it. But um, let me let me ask you this another way because it's a bit of an abstract question to ask. Do you have in your life challenges with this question? Whether you don't know if someone has what you call moral consideration? Absolutely. Um, I would. I uh, suspect that. The reason why actions such as self-defense um, are validated are because uh, the target of the violence of the would-be self-defense does not have moral consideration. Uh, it's a theory I'm playing with. I don't know if it's true or not. Wait, no, sorry. Maybe I maybe I mean I'm happy to talk about the topic, which is interesting. Sure. But what I meant was, in your oh, life specifically, do you have people say of? such low mental ability that you're not sure if they have moral consideration? Oh, sure. So, um, yeah, I, I know... Wait, do you mean oh, sure as in you do or oh, sure as I, in you I, understand the question? Both. Um, okay, I okay. have people in my life that have, say, abusive parents um, that use faulty logic um, to justify their actions or, for example... Wait, do um, the parents or the children use faulty logic to justify their actions? The parents. The parents use faulty logic... Um, to justify their child abuse. Okay. Um, as well as, um, uh, just an example I'm pulling off the top of my head, um, I debated about morality in UPB uh, with an ex-friend of mine now uh, who is a member of the military, um, and uh, we had the discussion of whether or not the uh, is it morally right for the U.S. to be involved in the Middle East and what we're doing and all that. And he used the justification that uh, morality is essentially subjective and everyone's subjective preferences define what makes their actions right. And so uh, he did very specifically say that the, the U.S. war in Iraq is justified because we want lower prices on oil. Well, so, so he uh, can't say that morality is, is, is subject, subjective and then say that something can be justified. Right, oh, you no, don't no. get both. Um, our action, any person's actions are morally justified if those actions coincide with that person's subjective preferences. And uh, there are tons of fallacies in his argument. Uh, I'm not, well, uh, so basically, he doesn't need the word morality. He can just say preferences. He doesn't need yes, to layer on. Yes. And, and that's, that's very faulty, of course, because morality is assumed to be universal. Because, because uh, if he's yes. just saying subjective preferences, then it's like, well – even if we were to accept the argument that the U.S. is getting lower oil prices out of the engagement in Iraq, which I would not for a moment believe to be true, uh, then – so if people are willing to murder for uh, something to be cheaper, then of course there should be no laws against stealing. Because if I go steal a car, it's clearly cheaper to me than buying it. 
And so there should be no laws against stealing. Of course, if there's no laws against stealing, in other words, the unchosen transfer of wealth, then his paycheck is going to have a significant problem getting check, uh, getting cashed, right? Because without the involuntary or, or, or um, coercive transfer of wealth, there's no taxes to pay for his military salary, right? For yes. his salary or his equipment. So it doesn't take very long for that entire thing to unravel. But it is quite interesting to me, at least, that there's a man in the military, and I'm sure that there's more than one, a man in the military who openly seems to be very comfortable with being a mere agent of a moral power. Like, yeah, I'm a stormtrooper. I know Darth Vader is one evil bastard. But, you know, I want what he wants because I like power and I like being able to impose my will and I like being paid for it. Uh, it's nothing to do with virtue or goodness or anything like that. It's just, you know, I like being an agent of power. Yeah, for nothing more than practical reasons. Um, right. The, well, uh, and, and he's assuming those practical reasons are true, right? Yes. I mean, if subjective preference is always justified, then there can be no such thing as rape being illegal or wrong, right? Because the yeah. rapist obviously <laughs> wants the sexual encounter, and the victim obviously doesn't because it's coerced. And and so the morality – so obviously, uh, I mean, he's been pretty damaged in childhood and by his actions as an agent of imperialism. And uh, I'm – you know, this like a stormtrooper who's become welded to his uniform and can't even take it off anymore, right? That's really tragic. I'm sorry about that, of course. Yeah. Um, I don't know him personally too well. Uh, it's just someone I've talked with online, used to play games together and whatnot. But uh, in any case, uh, this – the the initial question of where do humans' moral consideration come from uh, is important no, no, to me that because wasn't the, no, no, hang on, oh, sorry, that okay. wasn't the initial question. If if I remember oh. rightly, the initial question was between a rock and a person. Where's the dividing line of moral? Do you mean moral uh, agency was, or moral responsibility or moral applicability? Moral consideration. Um, yeah, I know, but but what does what does that mean? Subject to ethics. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, a rock okay. has no. Uh, no moral attributes are attributed in any way to a rock. A rock cannot commit can we, a... Can we say, I think, a, sorry to interrupt, but I think evil. a more standard term is moral agency. In other words, you act in a manner sure. that you can apply moral standards to. Yes. Or you can evaluate yes. someone's actions. Right, yeah, so if I, if I act in a mathematical... Sorry, if I act in a mathematical manner then we assume that whatever I'm doing can be subject to a mathematical evaluation. Absolutely. You know, if, I, if I'm doing some free-form dance, it's probably not that mathematical in nature, right? Um, but uh, if I'm proposing, you know, a solution to Fermat's last theorem, then that would be in the realm of mathematics, right? And would be subject to an evaluation of its mathematical content. And yeah. so, uh, so if we can say moral agency, that would be uh, actions taken by an entity that can be subject to a moral evaluation. In other words, they, they understand what morality is, uh, they, they may appeal to morality, uh, and uh, therefore we can, you know, if somebody understands what mathematics is and says, this is my mathematical proof, they can't really object to that mathematical proof being subjected to a mathematical evaluation, right? Yeah. Okay, so let's just yes. say moral agency, uh, for want of a better phrase, because sure. moral consideration to me sounds a little bit like we're putting a movie called morality in for an Oscar. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
so uh, what I was going to say was the um, the reason why it's important to me was because uh, as I was developing as a child and whatnot, I was always very interested in philosophy. I thought most uh, philosophical arguments that people put forth were just utter garbage because they contradict themselves. Uh, and hey, don't insult garbage. At least that was once useful. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I uh, I never explored it too much. I did go through it, but I never came out with what I would be satisfied with as like a comp- conclusive proof such as UPB. Um, and the rule of thumb that I use to excuse that necessity is um, what I, I had gone on the assumption that uh, decision-making entities or anyone with consciousness um, ultimately No, but that's probably circular, their, right? But sorry to interrupt, uh, but that's that's probably okay. going to be circular because you say, well, a moral entity is someone with with a decision making oh, entity yes. is someone with consciousness. But then you'd probably end up defining consciousness as that which can make decisions. So it probably is kind of circular or tautological. A little bit. Um, where, where I was going with it was, uh, I assumed that invalidating uh, someone else's ability to make their decisions is wrong, and that I assumed was the. I'm sorry. Can you repeat that, please? Uh, shoot, I had this written down so I don't misword it. I know I'm, I wasn't I faulting you. It. I just okay. I just wanted um, to make sure I understand. The uh, what I always assumed was the root of evil is invalidating people's or interfering with people's ability to make their own decisions to exist as a consciousness. Right. Um, okay, and so that would be the root of why voluntarism is never wrong if it's truly voluntarism in all senses, uh, then it can't be wrong. And so... But, but, but why, I mean, why would it be wrong to interfere with someone's decisions? I mean, that's just a statement. That's not yes, an argument. Yes, that right? was always the assumption that I had gone on. Um, yeah, but you, you know, you know <laughs> unless you want to start making uh, burrow noises, you know, that old <clears throat> never assume it makes an ass out of you and me, assume, right? So, you know... You, you can you can plant that flag there and say, well, if we assume that to interfere with other people's decision is the ultimate wrong, it's like, but that's begging the question. Why yes, is it wrong? Well, How that's is it exactly wrong? my point. Is okay, I never good, good. came up with a uh, a conclusive st- solution to that, um, and UPB uh, pretty much filled that in for me. But what what bothered me a little bit about UPB is it didn't. Uh, Describe specifically what makes someone a decision-making entity. Um, it made a few. No, no, but sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yes. And and I'm sure this would be good to put in more detail in in version 2.0. But I don't need to define that. That's not necessary. And I'm sorry to be annoying. And I'm not just going to brush you off and say, well, it's not necessary. I've made, waved my magic wand, and therefore yeah. you're you're. Right, and and the reason that I would say that is is let me let me give you an example, which is a, a direct analogy. To uh, what's a sport that you play? Uh, I've played tennis before. Okay, tennis, perfect, perfect. Okay, so um, let's say you and I decide. I, I call you up and say, let's play tennis, right? Yes. And you're like, okay. And I show up with a tennis racket and three golden orbs of tennis balls. And I have the white shorts on, and I have the right footwear, and I have the uh, the headband. And you and I then play tennis for an hour. 
Right. And I know, you know, it's, you know, 15, 30, 40, love. I mean, we do sets, you know, I know, you know. So, <clears throat> and and at the end, if I say, if you say, hey, that was a great t- game of tennis, right? And I say, oh, what now? No, I I was playing hockey. I don't know what, what, what do you mean tennis? What would you say? I would say we probably have different definitions of uh, what we think the word tennis means. Well, that's one possibility, except I couldn't possibly have learned tennis without calling it tennis. Most likely, yes. No, no, not most likely. Come on. Well, you yeah, meet if at we're a talking in hypotheticals. Course. You have a tennis yeah. coach. I have yeah. to go buy a tennis racket. I have to go buy a tennis ball. There's no possible way that I could not know if I'm good at playing tennis. There's no way that I could – I mean, and I even said, let's play tennis. So I, it's not different definition. That's yes, very yes. non-confrontational and very nice, but not accurate, right? I couldn't possibly know. I couldn't possibly be good at tennis without knowing it's called tennis, right? Correct. So, so we we accept that, right? Yes. Do you have to prove that I know what tennis is after you've just played with me for an hour? No, you've you have done that yourself in this case. Right. So how do you know someone is a moral agent? How do you know that someone is a tennis player? They play tennis. And how do you know that someone is a moral agent? They make universal arguments of preference. They, they argue or they use the concepts of universally preferable behavior. That's how you know someone is a moral agent. You don't have to prove it in some third-party way. You simply listen to what they're saying. Now, if they use language in a comprehensible manner, they're already performing universally preferable behavior. But the moment they use any kind of moral argument or any kind of argument for universal preferences, that may not be a moral argument. It could be an argument – well, you know, you say – if I say Cairo is the capital of Scotland and they say, well, that's incorrect, bang – Universally preferable behavior, right? There's an objective standard. Your subjective interpretation is incorrect. You should change your subjective interpretation to match yes. the facts, right? Yes. And so, like the moment this this crazy army guy said justified or true or valid or wrong or right, I don't mean morally, even just factually or logically – if I say all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, but Socrates is immortal, is someone going to say, well, okay. No, they're going to say, no, no. <laughs> if all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, Socrates must be mortal. Yes. You're wrong. Right? So th- that then they've just they, – what they've done is they've started playing tennis. They've got a tennis racket. They've got tennis balls. They're on the tennis court. They've got the right outfits. They know the score. They know who wins and loses. Yeah, you you cannot make an argument for, against, or even about uh, morality without admitting to its existence. Well, yeah. I mean, then it's like, well, we've just been playing tennis for an hour. I don't have to prove that you know what tennis is. I don't. You just spent an hour showing me. And even if I say, let's play tennis, and I show up at the tennis court with a tennis racket, even before I serve, I know what tennis is. 
But that doesn't mean I'm any good at it, but I know what it is. Because I've got the right racket. I'm in the right place. I've got the right balls. I'm not showing up with a cannon and a pterodactyl, right? Yeah. And so the moment somebody starts debating with you and tells you that there's you're wrong or you're right or this, boom, they're a moral agent. Now, monkeys don't do that, right? Dogs don't do that. Fish don't do that. Nobody calls up a manatee and says, let's play tennis. So they're not tennis agents, right? Yes. But the moment somebody says, you're wrong, let's debate, let's talk about the facts. The moment somebody says, no such thing as morality, oh boy, universally preferable behavior right there. Well, see, I, I have heard that people, <clears throat> excuse me, I have heard that people use the the justification that you know all of that can exist in a subjective environment, and so they're just asserting their own Wait, personal all of, preferences. All of what? Sorry, all of what can exist in a subjective uh, environment? All of the things that UPB calls for. I'm I, not it, sure what you mean by. Apart. Sorry, I'm, um, I'm not philosophically. I don't know what the term "calls for" means. Uh, the the axioms. Um, I, I actually uh, marked them down if you'd like me. There's uh, eight uh, that you listed in the the book. Yeah, that this supports for UPB, but the the fundamentals of UPB is not something that uh, really can be they can't be overthrown, right? Yes. So so the basic the basic argument that. Um, Theft cannot be universally preferable behavior because it must be both a value and the opposite of a value at the same time and in the same environment for two different people. Therefore, it can't be universal. Correct. Right? So it, it, to steal from something – if I steal something from you – I know you get this. But if I steal something from you, you must not want it stolen. So we can't both value theft at the same time. We can't both, you know, we can't both value property rights and we can both respect property rights, but theft cannot be universally preferable. Because if it's universally preferable, you must want me to steal from you, but if you want me to steal from you, it's not theft anymore. So theft cannot exist as a universally preferable yes. behavior. Now, that is incontrovertible. That is like you can't overthrow that. And and fortunately, since I've been testing my daughter on UPB since she was two years old, <laughs> you don't even have to be intellectually or emotionally above very, very young to get it. Yes. Right? So, Because if there was some proof for morality that, that was so abstract and esoteric that it required an IQ of 140 to – right? Then it wouldn't be much use to anyone, right? Yeah. Uh, unless you're arguing from the authoritarian principle, but then that would also self-destruct. Um, I well, did, yeah, especially if it was around the non-aggression principle, because then you'd have to have it inflicted by philosopher kings and so on, right? Which, <laughs> yes. So, the, you know, the great news about UPB is it's ridiculously simple, and it's unassailable. It's you know, it, it is you know, and I, I've had tentativeness and so on, but I've argued this now for six or seven years. It is unassailable. You cannot overturn. UPB, because there is no possible way that something can be both oppositely valued and universally valued at the same time, right? There's no – it is absolutely impossible for stealing to be universally preferable. It's absolutely impossible for rape 
and murder and assault to be universally preferable. It can't, can't happen because one of them has to be – like every one of those is an unwanted instance. Yeah. So something cannot be both universally wanted and individually unwanted at the same time. That is as basic as all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. I mean everyone – like my daughter understood that when she was three. And so UPB is both unbelievably simple and I – I give myself like a 76 or a 77% at succeeding at making it that way, which is not a passing grade for me. I mean, this is why I need to do a revisal of the book. But it is dead simple and unassailable. And the only reason that people complicate it is because if morality is dead simple and unassailable, people got to stop talking and start doing. Yeah. And everybody wants to argue over diet books rather than change their diet, right? So, I uh, I did want to say I'm not uh, refuting UPB here. I no, no, I get I, I get that you're not. I just you okay. know I, I have to okay. talk. I'm not just talking to you. I know, I know. It's it's a little bit difficult from my perspective of understanding what points you're making to me as opposed to the audience. Yes, I'm sorry about that. I That's apologize. fine. Don't but, worry about it. It's the nature of the uh, nature of the beast. Right. Um, the um, I would like to try and stay on a little bit of track here, though. Um, yep. Having we've we've gone some ways in terms of moral agency, right? Yes. Um, I don't I don't need to prove it. Somebody once somebody is exercising an appeal to morality, they're a moral agent. That's how you know. And by the way, that's how the court system works as well. Yes. Because if somebody's insane, then they're not a moral agent. That person is not a moral agent. But that person also will not try and hide their crime. Yes, um, the uh, the insanity. Um, I, I had written out a big tree of uh, of arguments to put forth in this, and uh, little of that seems to be applicable in this conversation already. Um, but I oh shoot, I even lost my track. Sorry, well, we were we were talking about moral. We've come we've come some way. In, in dealing with moral agency. Now, the challenge, of course, is that um, if somebody is like, if somebody strangles a hobo in front of a policeman, we assume that that person is insane, but they could also be sick and tired of being homeless. They know exactly what they're doing is wrong and they want to go to jail, right? There was a story, uh, I can't remember, in some TV show, if, if I think it was, where some guy committed a crime to get into jail so he could get treatment for his cancer. Or uh, in, in prison break, right? The, the brother. Oh, spoilers. Now we know this pretty pretty quickly, right? But the guy commits a crime because he wants to get into prison to break out his brother. Right? So he's not in, he's not insane, but he's he's not hiding his crime. Yes. Um the uh it's it's an inherent it's an objective preference for truth. Um which is uh one of my uh efficiency criticisms for the UPB axioms. Uh there are 8 axioms that UPB includes, and I believe f- three or four of them are simply implications of the objective preference for truth. Well, no, sorry. An, an axiom is something that is self-evident and not reasoned, and they're not axioms. They are syllogisms or arguments, because there's a series of them, right? Uh, yes. And 
and I, I would revise that, as I've mentioned before in the show, to the, 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 the supports for UPB. I wouldn't say that they're outright pr- – UPB is its own proof, but these are supports as to why – UPB is, is valid. Oh, oh! Uh, I do not mean the chains of the the various chains of arguments, such as the uh, the one on language and biology and all yes, that. Yes, not those. Okay, sorry um, about that. So, what do you mean? That's fine. Um, the what I identified as the UPB axioms were one: we both exist. The senses have a capacity for accuracy. Uh, language has the capacity for meaning. Correction requires universal preferences. An objective methodology. Well, sorry, exists. those yes. those. Yeah, do I? I can't remember if I used the word axioms there. You did not. Yeah, I, I specific because I would be surprised if I did. I specifically tried to avoid the use of the word axiom. Okay. As the foundation, because axioms are like if you accept this, then you know we go from here. Yes. And I, you know, I really tried to like for you say, well, if you accept that interference with people's rational decision is bad, we can go from here. But I, I you know, I to me, if you're going to take on the, but you can't have that. Well, if you accept that then we go from here, right? That to me is not, you can't, like you can't, because then you're just preaching to the choir, right? And um, so, sort of, you know, sort my, of. my concern uh, is that I wanted UPB to be, uh, to be um, indisputable, rationally indisputable, even for people who have no interest in the non-aggression principle, like outright fascists or totalitarians or communists or socialists or statists, or, right? And so I tried to avoid axioms, but what I would say is that I mean the, the big the big trick that I've well, trick I guess is one way of putting it. But the thing that I'm really focused on is is this this tennis analogy. <clears throat> I don't need to prove that someone knows tennis; they just have to show up in a, with a tennis racket, and then they can't argue. Right? They they can't argue. If I say if I say to you, let's let's meet at the tennis club and play some tennis, and you show up at the tennis club. You can't say that you don't know what the word tennis means. You can't yes. say that you don't know what tennis is, right? Or you can. You're just defeating your own argument. But no, you can't. I mean, you can say it obviously yeah, physically. That's, that's I, I, I can say I can say yes. two and two make five. But you can't philosophically validly say it. Yes, it's not true. Right? It's not true. And that's what I wanted. So somebody can, like, somebody could genuinely believe that I don't exist. But so what? I will never, ever talk to that person because the moment they talk to me, they're uh, affirming that I exist. Like they're, they're absolutely inconsequential to my life. They will never show up. And they will also never show up in anyone's life who believes that I exist. Right? Because if, if someone's talking to me and like if you're talking to me and your friend who believes that I don't exist comes up and talks to you and says that, Steph doesn't exist, why would they believe that you exist? If they accept that you exist, why would they reject that I exist? Yes. It wouldn't make any sense. It's like saying, well, there are two rocks there. I can touch them both, but one of them exists and one of them doesn't. Well, that would, you know, try saying that to a geologist. I mean, you'd be (laughs) insane. You'd be insane to say that. Yes. Right? So nobody who believes that other human beings don't exist will ever show up in any philosophical conversation. So they are irrelevant they are completely and totally irrelevant to philosophical conversation. They, they have about as much relevance to philosophy as, as some guy living in a shack in Montana who never talks to anyone has to the field of physics. No relevance whatsoever. 
He never works in physics. He never writes anything down. He knows no math. Completely irrelevant. And if you were to go to, you know, Dick Feynman or when he was alive or, you know, whoever the physicists are these days and say, well, you, you know, what about the guy in the shack in Montana who knows no math? They're like, why the hell would – what are you talking about? Why would he have anything to do with the field of physics? I mean, and it's as simple as if, if people believe that I don't exist, I simply walk at them. And if they move aside, well, busted, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's that simple. It's literally like there's no interest in in those arguments and some. So it's not even like an axiom. Well, you, you know, you just have to you just have to accept that I exist, and then we can go from there. It's like nope, because the moment someone's talking to me, I know they think I exist, and they can't say that they. I mean, they can say that. I mean, they're just wrong. Anybody who says that that I don't exist, and yes. and anyone who says objective reality doesn't exist, it's just wrong. Just wrong because they're they can only communicate that idea to me using objective reality. It's like me calling you on the phone and saying phones never connect to anyone. It doesn't like it just doesn't like these aren't axioms like, well, okay, let's just accept that these are true arbitrarily and move on from there. It's like, no, they they're that's why I tried not to use axioms, because axiom okay. is something which you just get you know, well just plant your flag here and we'll go from here. No, no, this is like it can't can't be it can't yeah, so be, you, you prove it's what I would if I were in your position, I would have written UPB and simply called them axioms as, as opposed to explaining them out, but you actually proved their existence as opposed to – Well, no. See, no. Th- th- this is the tricky part. You explained – Is that I'm, the, no, I'm, not, I'm not proving – because I'm not proving their existence. This is why I said earlier, do you need to prove that I know what tennis is? No. I have done that through my own behavior. I have proven that I know what tennis is by my own behavior. Yes. Uh, let me rephrase that. You've you're proving that the any potential rebuttal admits that the those uh, claims are correct, such as we both exist. It's, right. It's yeah. I mean, and that's yeah. So I, I focus on the behavior of the other person. Yes. And I I unpack the truths that the other person is embodying. And all I do is hold up a mirror to that person and say, this is what you must already accept in order to be doing what you're doing. So don't tell me this is open to question How when of you, you must have accepted it by doing what you're doing. Yes. Like it's the old argument I've made, like language is – somebody says language is meaningless. Well, you just use very specific instances of language very carefully chosen to communicate that it doesn't matter what you choose. In language, doesn't matter what words you could you could say, filibity gibbet head, and it would have exactly the same meaning as language is meaningless. But you didn't say that. You chose very specific words to convey that words have no specific content or purpose. Yes. Well, that's just not valid, right? I just I, I just you know you show up at the tennis racket, you know what tennis is. I don't I like, and then that that's to me. I'm not saying I invented that or anything like that, but bringing that to ethics. Because ethics has always been outside the conversation. Ethics is the law that's written down. Ethics is the social convention. Ethics is the Ten Commandments. Ethics is ethics is what God wants. Like it's always been something you have to prove outside. But once you get that there's nothing outside of humanity that supports or denies ethics, then you either have to go with your military friend down Hume's nihilism of the Isort dichotomy, or you have to find some other way. To establish ethics irrefutably without any 
axioms and without any reference to outside agencies that enforce these ethics actually or any reference to historical momentum or generally accepted beliefs or anything like that it's a hell of a challenge sorry you're gonna say um yes uh, earlier today actually i had an idea that i hadn't obviously had enough time to really think through but uh i would argue that there is actually a basis for ethics in reality itself in that the only uh, ethical statement we make, there, there, I would say that reality upholds an objective preference for truth. You can't point out a single case where falsehood is upheld by reality because it's sort of a by-definition thing. And so that being an ethical statement by nature, uh, you you cannot uh, – it – Wait, that sorry, but you say – sorry, sorry. Yes. I'm sorry to interrupt. Sorry. But what you, mean, what you mean is that wishing doesn't make something so, right? I can believe something false about reality. I believe I can fly, but that doesn't mean I can fly, right? Uh, correct. Is it that might, what you mean by not supported by reality? It might allow you to fly in your hypothetical uh, situation you're dreaming of, but that's all of that it does. There's, there's no extent other than the direct wishing you can fly. Yes. However, I would argue that falsehood is enormously profitable in reality. Oh, yes, because it's, it's, it's interfering with other people's decision-making by, by convincing them that certain things are other than what they actually are. Yeah, pay me a tithe because God wants you to. Yes. Look at that. I'm a multi-billionaire, right? <laughs> I sit on a throne of gold. Falsehoods are incredibly profitable in reality because human beings are in reality and human beings have choice and free will as I've sort of argued before. So a man on a desert island profits nothing from lies. But a man in the company of other men can enormously profit from lying. Which is why lies exist because they're just so incredible at gaining resources. I mean, I would people got to go out. I mean, going out and growing, the... going out and growing crops is a lot of damn hard work. You're preaching a sermon and give me your money or go to hell. Hell of a lot easier, right? Absolutely. The, uh... So lies, you know, lies and falsehoods have an incredible harvesting value as long as your crops are people, not things or or actual crops. Yes, it's a. Uh... Using using lies and falsehood uh, in regards to other consciousnesses is essentially like removing their consciousness from the equation. It's it's removing their ability to make decisions. I mean, it isn't actually doing it, but it's simulating the effect of removing their their existence and replacing it with whatever action you want them to perform. Yeah, I mean, removing is is tough. I mean, I was raised religious and became an atheist, and I was raised and became was a socialist and and became a libertarian and an objectivist and and then an anarchist. So I don't think it removes um, because that's to say that to be lied to makes you no longer a moral agent. Oh no, which no, I no. don't think it does because because reality is constantly reinforcing that I you're being lied suppressing to. Suppressing would right? be because nobody nobody actually. I mean. I mean, the absurdity of it is 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 obvious to those who are willing to look at it, and I don't mean you, willing to look at it with even a rem- remotely skeptical eye. I mean, if you 
you know, go go join a church and then put your hand up and say, God is speaking to me directly. He is telling me what to do. What's everyone going to say? They're going to say you're crazy. <laughs> yeah. They're going to say you're crazy. Yeah. Right. They're going to say you're crazy. Because God doesn't talk to anyone. And everybody kind of knows that. So if you say, oh, yeah, this religion is true. I prayed to God and he gave me a very clear answer. Well, people would say, well, that's crazy. And because so they're basically saying that the foundation of their religion is crazy. Because God certainly spoke to people to write down the holy books and God certainly spoke to people to inspire them to do X, Y, and Z. And God, in the whole Bible, there's God talking to this and God telling someone to do that and God giving someone else a sign for that and God smiting this, that, and the other. The whole reason that there is a religion. But then if you say, oh yeah, God's talking to me, just like he talked to everyone who wrote down the book, we all worship people like, you crazy? And so reality is constantly crowding out falsehoods, which is why everyone who lies together clings together, right? Yes. Because then they can hold up the human shields of universal, neo-universal compliance. Uh, you know, any religion in a minority of one is a mental illness. And um, so the world doesn't support lies, like nature and reality outside of human humanity doesn't support lies. But damn, lies are profitable for states and religions. Yes. Massively profitable. And so I, I would say that uh, you, using lies to impact people's behavior is, in essence, trying to replace them with what would be akin to a computer. I mean, you're you're trying to remove their identity from it, and I believe that is uh, the reason why that is wrong is because it's denying. It's I would call that violence against truth. Of you're you're denying their uh, ability to make decisions, which is why it's yeah. It's inherently wrong for people to be misinformed, not uninformed. Well, but okay, but sorry, the, the the word violence there is a challenge. Yes, because I think you're it stretching is. it pretty wide. So if if I go up to someone, and uh, if I'm part of a religion, like the people who come and knock on your door and they want to convert you to whatever religion they're following, and they talk to you for a while, they're not doing violence to you, right? Um. Not really. No, no. Come on, this is this is a bit binary, right? I, I mean, I don't have too on your clear pro- of a like you can order of them off. You, you can order them off your property. You can refuse to talk to them. You slam the door in their face. They got no recourse, right? Yes. And so they're not committing violence against you if they attempt to convert you as an adult to their religious perspective, right? Um, I. Maybe I'm misunderstanding what you mean by violence, but I would distinguish violence from force. Force is compelling someone to do something without their choice, and violence is – a boxing match is violent even though it's not forceful. It's – or maybe it is forceful, but it's not – it's done with both parties' compliance. It's voluntary. Yeah. See, I mean that's that's the challenge, right? I mean I I think if you're going to go on non-standard definitions, you're going to have – a tough time of it, right? I, I don't know what definition or term to use. I'm uh, just sort of... Well, but but on the other hand, like a, a death threat is certainly violence, right? Even even though you may not, right, even want to carry it out. But if you make a death threat against someone... Yes. That is, that is violence, right? Yes. <clears throat> and um, 
I mean, it's 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 as surely violence as a deferred debt is still money, right? Just because it's deferred doesn't mean it's not relevant. And so, if if someone comes to my house and and says to me that they're going to kill me if they if I don't join their religion, then they're committing violence against me. And if they go to someone, let's let's say they go to a child and they say to that child, "You have a soul." It's going to burn in hell forever if you don't join our religion. I would view that as violent because that's, that is a threat against a child. And it's even worse than a death threat because it's eternal torture, right? Yes. Now, does that mean you get to shoot people who are blah 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 I, I I don't think that that would be a valid way to do it. Um, but uh, um, that's certainly, you know, if somebody threatens a child. Now, again, this is all subject to some knowledge, People who've never thought of it that way or never had ex- explained to them that way and it's how they were raised and so on. Like I get that that doesn't mean that everyone who tells their children about hell is innately violent against their children or whatever, right? Because th- from yes. their perspective, Not they're being about so as violent. Yes. Yeah, I mean they're being about as violent as, as stop grabbing your child's coat when they're about to run into traffic. Yes. Keeping them safe, right? So, I mean, again, this is, as I've argued from the very beginning, which a lot of people overlook, I get that there's context. You know, I mean, one of the first articles I ever wrote back in 2005 was Sympathy for the Soldier. You know, understanding how much propaganda he's been subject to and so on, right? So I get that there's context, which is why, which is why I'm not out there shooting religious parents, right? Not that that would, I mean, I'm out there making arguments because the important thing is that people understand what the truth is and then they become moral agents. I view people in a state of propaganda and delusion to not be moral agents, which is why I don't suggest self-defense against people who are in, you know, telling kids about religion or sending them to Jesus camp or whatever, right? It's horrible stuff. It's horrible stuff. But they are in a state of pre-knowledge. And until they, they gain knowledge, and there's a domino effect in that case. Yeah, and and, and, and until until yeah, that that's why that's why I put out stuff about spanking, and I mean I, I make the reasoned arguments, I expand people's understanding, I, I make the case. That's that's the whole point. Now, once somebody is exposed to the case, then they have moral agency with regards to that. Once somebody has been exposed to the arguments against spanking, they either need to rebut those arguments or stop spanking. Yes. Right. That's that's a different matter. And again, it can take some time. It's like being exposed to anarchism or whatever. It can take some time and all that. But um, they are not moral agents until they've been exposed to better arguments. Like not everyone was totally evil and before the end of slavery. And now, of course, people who enslave others are evil – but it's not like the entirety of humanity was evil before slavery was abolished or anything. I mean, there is progress that takes time. There is understanding that takes time. There's arguments that take time. And there's a lot of pushback, of course, because people don't want to. I mean, if they expand their moral definitions, then they have a great challenge in their lives. And they've got some apologies to make, right? And they don't want to yes. necessarily do that. Everybody wants to die with the same ethics they were born with. I suppose right? I, uh, I, I would like to distinguish between uh, what you're saying of moral agency uh, responsibility for your own decisions, essentially, or moral responsibility for them. And um, what I uh, initially meant when I said moral consideration of a rock does not have moral consideration that if we crack it, 
does not matter. But uh, say an unborn infant or an infant uh, that does not have moral agency, they're not truly responsible for their own decisions yet, but they still would have moral consideration in that if we crack the infant open, that's still wrong. Right, right. And that's the little bit that I'm having a bit of difficulty uh, distinguishing there. And I'm <clears throat> of what's the difference between moral consideration of being the object versus the subject. Or the victim. Of, yes. And so I'm, I'm having difficulty drawing the line between uh, sperm and egg. Uh, well, look, I, again, I don't want to, you know, adult. figuring out the abortion thing is obviously a big challenge. Oh, but yes. So we'll, uh, we'll cast it at. Yeah, we'll cast it, and I've written about it before. We've cast it pretty wide, though. So just because somebody is not currently exercising moral agency does not mean that they do not have the capacity to exercise moral agency. Yes. So if I take a nap, I'm not currently exercising moral agency. That doesn't mean I, I can be strangled with impunity, right? Because I've got to wake up and then resume moral agency, right? Yes. So being in a state of non-moral agency when you have the capacity – to be in a state of moral agency does not mean that you get treated as if you have no moral agency. Yes. Right? It doesn't mean that you then, you know, we don't put babies in burgers, right? Yes. Having the capacity for moral agency is what causes moral consideration. Is that what right. So, okay, uh, so a, a baby, great, a, great yeah, a baby can't be killed because the baby's going to grow into moral agency. The baby is essentially napping for a year or two until they begin to develop moral agency. Uh, like a, a, a guy in a coma whose brain is intact or whatever, you, I mean, you could hopefully, you're not going to just kill the guy and eat him, right? Because, you know, you wake up from a coma. Right? Yes. I mean, when I was getting neck surgery, I was under. I couldn't be woken, right? But that doesn't mean they get to just pull an OJ on me and, you know, sever my neck to the and kill me, right? Because I am going to resume my moral agency. And so that's, um, I think that's, Specifically, what I was, <clears throat> what I got onto this subject with was um, what justifies murder or violence against an individual. Um, <clears throat> no one really refutes that self-defense, in utter necessity, is not morally wrong. Um, for example, in the um, I won't use real-world events because that gets complicated. Um, <clears throat> if someone's running at you and they're going to kill you. Uh, it makes sense that you do... Right, I'm sure nobody knows which real-world <laughs> event you're talking about there, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, if someone's running at you and they're going to kill you, it makes sense that you do what is necessary to prevent their use of violence. And so I feel... This is an emotional argument. I feel as though the answer to solving the self-defense problem uh is at least in some part related to our definitions of moral agency and moral consideration, because in that situation, we're not treating the, uh, the perpetrator, I guess, uh, as a, as something that has moral consideration. Well, no, because the, the, the perpetrator is not treating us as a moral agent, so we don't have to treat them as a moral agent. Yes, uh, that's what I was hoping. Right, you because were going they, to they're going to kill us, right? Which means that they're ending our capacity as a moral agent. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's like saying, well, you know, uh, um, uh, I'm I'm selling iPads for four hundred bucks, and somebody 
sends me a check for 400 bucks that bounces, do I still have to send them my iPad? Well, of course not. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, because they have failed to fulfill their side of the obligation, so naturally I'm under no obligation to fulfill my side. And so if somebody's not treating me as a moral agent, I have no need to treat them as a moral agent. Yes. In the same way as I have no obligation to tell the truth to, to a chronic liar. And so I believe that, or here's my theory, that that um, moral agency and moral consideration come from, uh, sorry about that, um, that they, they come from an individual's acknowledgement of other people's agency and consideration in that it, it's a voluntary contract. Well, no, but you see, I think you're starting to complicate it then. We already have UBB. What do we need? Like we already did the whole tennis analogy. Well, why do we need anything else? Uh, because, you know, it's important to know when to stop selling. When is it okay to kill someone? Well, no, no, no. See, <laughs> that that's not a matter for philosophy. That's a matter for law. That's a matter for a court system. A little bit. Uh, the, no, the court no, system no, would no, be defining. Listen, no, no. Hang, the, on, hang on, hang on, hang okay. on, hang on, hang on, hang sure. on. We're talking physics versus engineering. They're not the same discipline, right? Philosophy is physics. Law, that's engineering. Yes. Right. So physics is obviously you can't have engineering without physics. You can't have physics without engineering. But but it's like asking a physicist. What tensile strength is necessary for this bridge to stand? Well, that's an engineering question. Right? So philosophy doesn't need to answer under what circumstances exactly is someone justified in killing in self-defense. Once, I mean, and I've got a whole article on UPB and self-defense, which people can look up if they want. But self-defense is justified according to UPB. Murder cannot be universally preferable behavior. That's it. Now, how that is implemented in each particular situation is not the job of philosophy. Anymore that it's the job of the physicist to know what is the most economically efficient way to build a bridge that will stand in these particular locations. Right? That that is not the job of a physicist. Yes. It's to study the nature of matter, not the practical implementation of materials, right? So, and, and, and getting dragged into law when you're talking about philosophy is a grave trap because you can't ever answer that. Because what you're saying is, what is the ideal material that is economically efficient and strong enough to withstand every conceivable situation? That's that you understand if you take that to an engineer – he can't answer it. Some will need to be stronger. Some will have storms. Some will have earthquakes. Some will be in someone's backyard going over a little puddle, right? You can't, each individual situation needs to be figured out. But I'm telling you this. None of those instances of good bridge building will be in opposition to the laws of physics, right? Correct. And so you've got to avoid – a jury situation. You've got to avoid a trial. You've got to avoid the law when you're talking about virtue because then you're switching professions. 
and you can't make any philosophical definition that will adjudicate every act of self-defense because then you wouldn't need law. You wouldn't need evidence. You wouldn't need a court system, whatever that's going to be in a free society, whatever, right? Whatever developed in common law, right? So you're saying, well, if I'm a good enough physicist, we can get rid of all engineering. No, you can't. They're two very disparate disciplines. Now, clearly, engineering is, is subservient to physics. Engineering has considerations that physics doesn't have. Physics is studying the nature of matter as it is. And engineering is saying, well, to, to use materials in the most economically efficient and productive and useful manner. But what the hell does physics have to do with economically efficient? And what the hell does physics have to do with the right amount of tensile strength for this particular environment? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, they're, they're, they're just not the same yes. at all. And so if, if you start to say, well, okay, we've now said that self-defense is valid, murder, theft, rape, and assault cannot be universally preferable behavior. They're immoral. What, what a great job we've just done. We've completely revolutionized society just with those statements. Now, if we then want to leap into every conceivable situation where these laws might be applied, well, now we're not philosophers. We're lawyers. We're judges. I'm, uh... We are expert witnesses. Right, we are a jury. We, like we can't take philosophy and have it replace judge, jury, and executioner. That's not the job of philosophy. Yes, uh, I'm nobody I'm ever says, a... nobody ever says I need to build a two hundred story building. I need a physicist. No, they say I need architects, engineers, whatever. Right, but not the same. Yeah, there's. I think the the. Um... Philosophy to law is to physics and engineering is a, a perfect analogy there. I mean, there's a lot of various extrapolations and details that are analogous. And you um, want to, and I look, and you want to, and I want to delve into law because we don't want to stand with the physics because the physics are very uncomfortable. Because if we've just proven rape, theft, murder, and assault are immoral and universally immoral, you understand we want to jump into individual instances of the application of those rules because otherwise we just have to work on spreading those rules and getting people to understand those rules. And that's quite uncomfortable because that takes away the state. That takes away religion as as the source of, of virtue. I think we have enough work cut out for us with the state and religion without having to worry about potential theoretical situations in the year 2250 that we also need to answer. Did you see what I mean? Absolutely. We want to leap into practical application because spreading the ideas is really tough. It's like saying, well, I'm not going to advocate for the end of slavery until I figure out which job every slave is going to have. Well, clearly that's just a way of avoiding advocating for the end of slavery, right? Yeah. And so we want to jump into adjudicating in the courtrooms of our imaginary futures because that makes us feel like we're doing something, but we're not. We're avoiding doing something, something much more important, which is we need to spread that slavery is wrong. 
And that is a very simple and clear message that needs to be repeated ad infinitum until people get it. It's the same thing with UPP. We want to sort of – that's why I asked when you said exactly. Exactly is not a very useful term in philosophy. I mean something is valid or it's invalid. It's true or it's false. But exactly – the moment you said exactly, I knew you were heading to legal land. Uh, yeah, the the particular case – I guess it's not too yeah. specific. The, the example uh, that brought about this line of thinking for me was – if I know people who have abusive parents and will continue to be abusive people and have openly and directly admitted to their own immorality and they disregard morality as a valid subject, then I'm having difficulty justifying the wrongness of violence used against them. For example, if they were to be uh, imprisoned or killed or so on, I'm having difficulty seeing how they fit into the uh, – how they have moral consideration. So, oh, wait, are you saying people who abused their children? Uh, yes. But not and as who, a means – not as in they abused them because they didn't know um, about because the they, they, they So they abused them because they were cruel. Yes, rather truly than and openly sadistic. Right. But why would you want – I mean – what would that have to do with spreading UPB? It doesn't. But it's distracting. Somewhat. It's it's a means of preventing them from continuing their own actions, which are those actions would be against upholding UPB. But so I'm I'm not sure if that fits into what you're saying. Well, but you, if you want, to, I mean, when their kids become adults, or. To the world as a whole, you can talk about voluntarism within the family. You can give people the basic fact and reality that they do not have to spend time with their parents. Yes. You know, I mean, everyone thinks they're a slave, but you can quit any time. It's sort of like in, in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. When Randall Patrick McMurphy realizes, spoiler, realizes that most of the people are there by choice. He's there because he's been ordered there the court has sent him there for sex with a minor chick not hat and towards the end he realizes that the people are there by choice that they could check themselves out anytime and with regards to families um, you don't have to be there that that is going to change people's behavior in the most fundamental way possible and people talk about privatizing the school system, privatizing the post office, even privatizing the currency. All that is predicated and requires privatizing the family first. People can't be any more free than their personal relationships. And if they feel no choice in their personal relationships, they will value no choice in any other relationship, be it political or economic or anything like that. And if you promote the idea of voluntarism within the family – you will be innately encouraging and inexorably encouraging better behavior on the part of parents. I mean, if we could somehow magically privatize the school system tomorrow, the teachers that would be there six months from now would be vastly better. You wouldn't have to go and convince each teacher to become better and, and say, well, it's in your interest to become better. And right now you just you need to make things voluntary and quality improves on its own. 
you know, rather than lifting a whole bunch of boats using winches, just top up the water and they'll rise on their own. Once you introduce volunteerism, quality occurs inevitably, inexorably, naturally. And, and this has been shown so many times when things get privatized and when things become voluntary. And so if you want to oppose the interests of abusive parents, I applaud you for that. Brave man, good man, the best man, the best thing you can do. The most practical, important, and liberating thing you can do. You just promote voluntarism within the family. You don't tell people to stay or go because that's not promoting voluntarism. You say you are free to go or you're free to stay. And once voluntarism works its way into the family, families will improve. In the same way that when you privatize a restaurant, the quality of the food and service will improve. Ever try and get a meal at a Soviet-era restaurant? Ugh, it's terrible. And so, if you want to improve families, promote voluntarism. There's no other way. There's no other way. I mean, we all know this economically. If you want to improve currency, privatize it. If you want to improve the post office, privatize it. You don't argue with every postal worker while leaving it in the hands of the government. It would get you nowhere. And if you want to improve the family, which is the most essential thing that's necessary for the improvement of everything else, promote voluntarism within the family. Because it, it will improve the family as much as privatizing the post office will improve the post office. Now, lots of people don't want that. But sorry. <laughs> I mean, right is right. But it sure beats adjudicating potential law cases in 2020. No, 2220, right? <laughs> yes, it does. All right. I'm afraid I have to end here because my voice is uh, beginning to fade. And um, But I really, really appreciate Great, great call. I do love me some UPB talk. And I really appreciate your focus and attention in bringing these topics up and giving me another avenue to expand upon. Uh, this work and um, FDR, uh, sorry, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show, help us survive and thrive and have yourselves a wonderful evening, everybody. We will talk to you on last Saturday, man.